燃え上がれガンダムAbsolutely. This is the end of the OVA a thon. Yes. We will have some OVAs in the 2000s, though, like the theatrical ones. We already did Unicorn, but yeah. this is the end of the, like,、uh, and we also did Endless Waltz back on the Gundam Wing episode. So. Yeah, so we did. So those were the four of the classical period of OVAs of the 90s, where OVAs、yes. were extremely popular. Yes.、Uh, and this is one of the best, one of the、oh, most、yeah. fun. Uh, you know, O8th MS team, I've referred to a couple of times on this show as like, goody, we get to have our dessert now. And that is what it feels like. And it feels like that in a couple of ways for me because 8th MS team is just one of the most purely entertaining Gundam series.、Uh-huh. I, I also think it is a very surface level Gundam. Like, it is, I don't think it is particularly deep. It is not war in the pocket. It is not turn A Gundam. It, you will not come away with it. From it, with like a different viewpoint on the world and the nature of war and time and space and all these things. It is very surfacey, but I don't really mean that as a criticism. I think when the surface is this rich and this fun and this well executed pretty consistently, that's just great. And、yeah. it is just one of the most purely entertaining. And if you are a Gundam fan who is just into the, the cool mechs and the fights, And the world building. This has all of that in spades. And it is one of the Gundams I would say, if you have even a passing interest in the franchise, you would probably love. Absolutely. It is, it is a thing where it, it, one of the things I love about O8MS Team is the way that it is one of the few Gundams that captures a very specific feeling from that mid period of the original show. Um, because it has a similar thing of, like you're saying, where it is not interested in the big picture ideological stuff. It is not about、um, this young boy changing his whole philosophy on what the world is and everything like that. It's a very sort of grounded military style story. It's like this one, very clearly, it's like the Vietnam Gundam show.、Um, but it, it has that thing that the original Gundam had in that period 
where um, it just has this very like we're focused on this small picture perspective on this these much bigger events and we tell that story really well with fantastic pacing with great character work with great action and it doesn't certainly have like the deepest thematic elements of the Gundam franchise has to offer um, but not all Gundam needs to be that or do that um, yeah. because this what it does offer um, is basically an entire season of episodes of Gundam that feel like um, the Time Be Still episode where uh, from the original Gundam where the Xeon soldiers put the bombs on the Gundam. It feels like this team watched that episode and were like, what if we just made a show that was this? Um, yeah. And that's what 8th MS team and it is and it fucking rules. Yes. Yeah, and when I say 8th MS team is surfacey, you know, what I mean is that it also knows what register it's working in. Yeah. It, like, there is a turn the show takes, and we can even talk because it's actually when the director shift happens. Yes. That the show knows that it is going to be kind of a soap opera, and it knows it is going to be big, loud emotions, and the major themes of the show are going to be things the characters will tell you. Yeah. But it's good at that. Like, uh -huh. it's, it's actually really interesting to put next to Stardust Memory, which we talked about last time, which I don't think knows what register it's working in. Uh -huh. Because it is often very soapy, but feels like it's trying to be more like OG Gundam or something. Which or it's like it feels like it's trying to be like Zeta Gundam. Yeah. It does not know how to be like Zeta no. Gundam. And, and it doesn't really know how to work in that register. I think 8th MS team is extremely confident at what register it's in. And I don't think every single aspect of it is perfect. We'll talk about... I'm not a fan of the finale of this show. But we will talk about what is the finale of the, the show. show yes. I think what you're saying is the finale is not no, the finale. No, the but the main eleven episode yes. run is so confident. Uh, I also love that it is very episodic uh, in the way that when you say it's like that time be still, it's also that like each individual episode is just a good piece of military fiction. Yeah, and and if you like that kind of thing, like the kinds of episodes that would not be in the movie adaptation, let's say, uh -huh. um, this is like an OVA full of those, and then builds to a two part finale that is. The peak of all Gundam action in my mind. Oh yeah, no, it so, has the best action sequence in any Gundam, yeah. which is basically the entirety of episode ten. Yeah. yeah, it's also got a fucking Kohei Tanaka score. I mean, oh, yeah. what is what is not to love? It's yeah, no, it's just a <laughs> fucking killer Gundam show. Um, yes. Yeah, and it's one I know we both have been very excited to get to. Um, it's one of the most rewatchable. It's oh, yes. like. You know, like, War in the Pocket is not one I could just turn on any random weekend. I could do that with 8th MS Team. Yes, absolutely. Because it, it just kicks so much ass. And it's got a really interesting production history. So, oh, yeah. let's talk about it. Yeah, so, in terms of production. So, uh, Mobile Suit Gundam 08th MS Team is an OVA series of 11 episodes and a special bonus episode, effectively, um, which is the 12th episode. And a compilation movie, Miller's Story, and then there is also a like short little like special they did in 2013 um, that's like nine minutes long called Battle in Three Dimensions, um, which is just like an action scene basically with those characters. Uh, it's not we're not going to address that because it's not substantial. But it, so it's you know it's a very popular um, sort of small segment of the history of Gundam, and it ran from 1996 to 1998. With the twelfth episode then being um, in July twenty fifth, nineteen ninety nine. Uh, the the L L eleven is also ninety nine. Is it? I thought there is a so episode ten is July ninety eight and episode eleven is April ninety nine. There was a huge delay between those two. Oh yes, no, you are right. Yes, yeah, yeah. If you were, I I I weep for the people in Japan watching this as it came out because there were some brutal delays. Yes, um, and so the reason why there are brutal delays is that the original director uh, Takeyuki Kanda. Uh, tragically passed away. He was killed in a car accident uh, in 1996. 
So he, um, the original director, was a Sunrise guy. He had done this series in a bunch of OVAs based on the series called Ginga Hyoryu Vifam, um, which basically means like Wandering Dragon of the Galaxy Vifam, which is his name. I don't know how you're supposed to pronounce the Vifam in English. I'm just going to call him Vifam. Um, and so he made that show. It was very popular. It got like a spinoff. It got some OVAs. Um, and he, he was the creator and director for that series. Um, along with a couple of other um, mecha shows that he did. Like, he worked on Raiding the Brave, which is a pretty popular super robot show that Sunrise had. Um, and so then they gave him um, this with an episode order of 12 episodes to do an OVA series. Um, and so they worked on it with his team. The rest of the people are sort of like stand hard, standby Sunrise people that have been a bunch of stuff, like Kunihiro Modi, who has done writing and storyboarding on a bunch of Gundam stuff at this point. Uh, Akira Nishimori, a similar situation. So there's a bunch of Gundam people making the show. Um, and then they make the first six episodes. And after the production of the sixth episode, which all the episodes being individually released um, on VHS or Laserdisc, uh, other than the first two, which were released as a pair. So after they released the sixth episode and were in pre-production on the seventh episode and getting that ready, Takeyuki Kanda is killed in a car accident. Um, and so then there's sort of a scramble to figure out what to do. Uh, that causes massive delays in the production. They get a new director, Umanosuke Ida, um, who has not done a huge amount of stuff, but has like done a little bit here and there. Um, and so he's kind of brought in to see the show to its conclusion. Uh, the rest of the staff is basically the same. And that's where you get like these long, long delays. So episode six, uh, released in December 18th, 1996. Reunion, episode seven, releases in October 1997. So yes. you're getting basically a year-long delay there. The production picks up a little bit. Then you get your huge delay between episodes 10 and 11. I mean, you have... So it's interesting. Like, during the first director, yeah, all six of those, those first six came out pretty regularly in 1996. So 1996 is half the series. Yes. And then 97 is two episodes, 98 is two episodes, and 99 is two episodes. So those last six, like I have to assume that with the with his death, like I, I know we don't have huge behind the scenes details, but it must have just been like all the resources they were putting to it maybe had to go do other things or, or well, like... part of it was there was not because obviously he didn't expect to be killed in a car accident so right. he, like there were not hugely detailed um, drafts or whatever of the subsequent story because he was yeah. the director so he oversaw the big picture perspective on where everything was going and he had notes and memos but he did not have a like this is beat by beat where we are going um, and I think I suspect pretty strongly that that is the reason why it, it is 11 episodes really and not 12 episodes really right um is due to that scenario because the original episode run was they had like signed contracts and advertised it like the original tv spots all advertised it as being a 12 episode run all this kind of stuff um when the new director is putting stuff together and trying to figure out what to do they ultimately end up with 11 episodes um so then it, i from what i understand and effectively what happened was in order to fulfill the 12 episode count they made last resort which is the 12th episode which is referred to as a tokubetsu hen which is like special episode special part um and that episode and this is an interesting thing i discovered upon diving into some of the stuff on the japanese internet in the japanese from the japanese perspective that is not part of 08MS team. Interesting. Proper. So yeah. if you look up 08MS team on Japanese Wikipedia, it is 11 episodes. And then below that says OVA special part 
Last Resort, and then under that says Miller's um, Report, the movie. Yeah. Um, and even if you try to stream it on Amazon.com, uh, Last Resort is a separate thing. So it is you go into O8MS team, it is 11 episodes. There's a separate tile that is where Last Resort is, and there's a separate high tile where Miller's Report is. And it is that's that's how it should be. Yeah, that's how it should be. Um, that episode, for whatever reason, in the West, it's just not organized that way. Um, so even though like, it did not air, the, the Cartoon Network yeah. airing, which it aired in two thousand one on uh, Toonami, and I think they honestly made all the right calls because they just showed the eleven, and for episode eight, they edited in all the extra footage from Miller's report, which we'll probably talk about later. Is yeah. honestly really good stuff that people should see, but. Um, yeah, and then they, they did not show Last Resort, but it's always been on our DVDs and Blu-rays here. Yeah, so so for people, if you watched it and didn't, like, know, I mean, and we'll talk about it when we get there, about how obvious it is that it is not supposed to be part of yeah. the original run. But, like, I had no idea that it, le like, legitimately is not supposed to be a part of and considered to be part yes. of, uh, like, the story of OHMS Team. It is a special um, extra episode, effectively, that, as far as I can tell, they basically had to make in order to fulfill... The original order of it being a 12 episode yeah. series and you know i think you can like nothing about the style animation wise or music wise or anything changes between episodes six and seven i do think there's a subtle shift in how the second director sees the story yeah. where he leans heavier on the soap opera sort of aspect of it the romeo and juliet of it all and kind of goes for those maybe more heightened emotions in ways that are they are there in the first six yeah. But I think he like it's something clearly like that that guy and that team saw and kind of drew out in a way that I'm not sure would have been as strong in the initial plan for the series because it does feel like a bit of a hard turn. Yeah, and I like what I am guessing is I would not be surprised if the original idea would be to have a lot of the material that's in episode 7 to have actually been two episodes of Shiro and Aina together. Yeah. Um because because for me episode 7 is like rough because it is clearly like a hard transition um that is like kind of messy in a lot of places into what you're saying of the soap opera thing and then i think after that they get back to what feels more like this feels like the way the mess team moving towards a conclusion um which is why it feels more heightened there but yes it definitely you can tell you can feel it i think very clearly in episode seven and then you can definitely kind of feel a general shift in the overall tone but a lot of the material is still like the heart of the show feels like it is still there no absolutely like there's it's not one where like i don't think you would notice it if you didn't know the production history you would not yeah. know that there were these massive delays you would not know that you're watching episodes that came out a year apart but when you then go and read about it you go okay that kind of tracks with what i saw and it's so it's not the kind of thing where like gundam wing you can just tell the scripts just went out the window and they had no idea what they were doing. That's not this show. Yes. But, like, there is a little shift, and as, as you would naturally have. And, and it's, it's tragic that the, the first director passed away that way. Um, but, man, they, they did it justice down the home stretch. Yeah. And to just give people a little bit of perspective um, of where we are in terms of the rest of the Gundam thing, because this airs for such a long time. So the beginning of 08th MS Team overlaps with the ending of Gundam Wing. Um, the entirety of After War Gundam X and Endless Waltz comes out over the course of the OHMS team's uh, release. And then the very end of OHMS team overlaps with the very beginning of Turn A Gundam. Yeah, it's a long... I mean, it's by far the longest time it took for any Gundam show to come out. Oh, yeah, absolutely, yeah. So it is, like, 
you know, stretch. It basically just stretches over the entire second half of the 90s in terms of what Gundam yeah. is and brings us effectively, if, for the purposes of the show, up to where we left off with Turn A Gundam at that yes. kind of period of the show's history. And honestly, I think it's kind of remarkable that the animation style is so consistent uh-huh. over these 12 episodes because it has a very mid-90s feel, like a high-budget mid-90s. Yeah. And it, it can maintains that even when you get to the end where you know things would be shifting and and, yeah. So it's yeah, it's so good. Yeah, it's a fantastic show with like an unfortunately tragic um, elements of its production history, but ultimately comes out as a fantastic show that that to me like epitomizes and is the best version of the grounds on the boot or yeah boots on the ground military style Gundam fiction that gets away from the new type stuff and all that. Um, is just like very focused on this limited perspective of a soldier living in this war and fighting in this war. I think this is the best that Gundam ever gets at telling that story. Yeah, I I might art well. Would Thunderbolt apply to that? Because Thunderbolt does have a little new typey stuff. No, I, I would say that it's because okay. because it's also we are not like Shiro Amada is a good pilot. He's not an ace pilot. That's a good point. There's yes. a big difference, big difference between yeah. him and the kinds of pilots yeah. you see in Thunderbolt. And Thunderbolt literally isn't boots on the ground because it's 100 percent space. Yes. So yes. Yeah. Um, so that's part of what I mean of like, and yeah. that's why it has this like uh, time be still element to it. Is it is like these are normal sh- sh- soldiers. Yeah. Like Shiro is a very skilled pilot for a normal person. Yes. But he is far away from the level of skill you get from a Norris in the show or even the pilots in Stardust Memory who are not as good as an Amaro, but Ko is clearly several steps above the average pilot in terms of yes. his ability. Yeah, I mean, he's a test pilot. Yeah. Um, Shiro is kind of a low-level commander in in this area of the war that, like, you get a sense is not a huge priority for, like, command. Um, yeah, it's like, <laughs> it's only sort of important because it's vaguely close to Jaburo. Like, right. it's not actually close to Jaburo, but it's, like, on the same continent as Jaburo. Yeah. So it's like, well, if Zeon's doing stuff down here, yeah. we don't want to make sure they're not getting too close to Jaburo. So we'll have you guys be over here. Well, literally, one of the things 8th MS team does really well is it signposts where we are in the timeline. Yeah. And so you know that, like, the bigger things are happening. Odessa Day takes place over the first half of 8th MS team. Yeah. Like, they're getting ready for the big final battles in space as this series is wrapping up Mm -hmm. you know they're like part of it is like they don't want the apsilus to get out there at the end because they're gonna go take on um um uh, solomon solomon yeah Yeah. solomon so like there's stuff like that that is just really cool um but i agree about the boots on the ground thing i mean it is it is such a good ground level perspective with these pilots who are very much not aces it's like what is it just like day-to-day life in in the in the in the in the federation military um and that's why episode ten, when we get there, is so fucking good. Yeah. Is it's like it's it's like it's like a, it's like Darth Vader in like Rebels or something, yeah. Star Wars uh, or or Rogue One or something. Like, what is when a normal person goes up against someone like this? What is that like? And it's fucking crazy, it's fucking scary. Yeah, shit. yeah. yeah. Um, so yes. So where do we want to start with with this series? Breaking it down. Uh, let's start with the beginning because I want to talk about the first episode, which has one of my favorite action sequences in all of Gundam, which gives credit to the most underrated of all the mobile suits, <laughs> which is the respectable ball from the Earth Federation. War for Two is one of the best Gundam premieres. Yeah, it and is it is a very so good. it's a very unconventional Gundam premiere because in many ways. Episode 2 is... It's almost like a prologue, and then episode 2 is like... You actually get to the jungle, you meet the full team, all of that stuff. But but episode 1 is really just kind of getting... Putting Shiro in place, and meeting Aina. 
but it does it with such incredible skill and style, and it is such a powerful introduction to these characters. And yes, there is no better way to make me think your main character is cool than to have him go out against overwhelming odds in a fucking ball and win. Yes, um, and it, you know, it's just the whole sequence of events of him seeing there is a pilot out there that is stranded, and he's like, "We got to go save him. We have to do something." The pilot of their like transport ship's like, "Well, we don't have any fucking mobile suits." It's like, "Yeah, well, I saw that ball in the docking bay, like when I came on board." So it's like, "Let's use that." It's like, "Okay." Um, the way like the mechanics of using this thing that is clearly this outdated piece of shit that is not designed for modern war um in this period and it's not a mobile suit it should not be able to go up against a zaku and like the only tactic he can do is to basically like tackle it use the ball to like bear hug the fucking zaku and and use like the rope on it to sort of hold it down long enough for um sanders as who we will come to know as one of the main characters as he escapes back to their dropship um and just the sense of desperation um and the perspective of it as being someone who's a gundam fan and you have always seen in the background in any of this one-year war stuff these shitty little Federation bubble suits, these balls with a giant fucking gun cannon on top, um, and they are always useless, and they're so dumb-looking, and they just seem so shitty. They're the usually that... like the cannon fodder where in a battle you see a bunch of them blow up. Exactly, yeah. And they're like, and there's a great design in how they feel like this is why mobile suits are as effective as they are, is because this is what they were using before. Um, and there's a logic to the ball's design in terms of space combat um, that also just looks so weak and flimsy. So bring that out and like using that properly in an action sequence... Um, it is both just like a great characterization for Shido as this like reckless but skilled pilot who is going to be our main character. Um, but then it is also just incredible fan service as a Gundam fan um, to see that thing actually be used in an action sequence. And like, and it also sets the stage for all the action sequences in 8th MS Team, which is that they are really detail oriented. Yeah. They are very thoughtful about the mechanics of these things. If you are a like Gundam nerd who likes, you know, Feel, seeing how the different pieces of it are going to be used and like the strategy of battles and those sorts of things that like I think Tomino Gundam does well a lot. Yeah. Um, you're gonna, you're just right away you're gonna feel at home because it's ridiculous and yet the way Shiro kind of wins the day is utterly plausible in mm -hmm. how you actually see like, okay, so he uses the cable on the ball and he wraps around and then both the ball and the Xeon suit are kind of breaking apart as they're being like hugged together. He's using like gravity and like rotation. It's just, it is such a good action sequence. Yeah, and, and ending with the destruction of both our ex experimental Zaku that Aina pilots and, yeah. and the most powerful, the best, the greatest of all the balls. The, I have the full name of it. It's the RB79K ball type K. Yes. Um, good, mad respect to the ball. Yeah. Have you read Crossbone? I know you've read Crossbone Gundam. Have you read the Skull Heart follow-up? No, I have not gotten to that yet. Okay, there is a chapter in that where, where like the old guy in Crossbone Gundam is talking about how when he was a young lad, he did something like this in a ball. Um, and I think that would have published before 8th MS Team. This is better, though. This is a mm -hmm. better ball action sequence. Because um, I think the one in Skullheart is called, like, An Idiot Triumphs in a Ball or something. So it is not... This is not the only time Gundam has done it. I do think this is the best time Gundam has done yes. it. Yes. Um, this is the two times the ball has been used in, yes. in the history of Gundam as an effective weapon. And yet, to me, that's not even the main reason why this is such a great premiere. It's because the second half of the episode is this just phenomenal narrative hook yeah. of Shiro and Aina having to work together to survive. And if 
Shiro going out in a ball wasn't enough to kind of tell you who this guy is. The he will work with his enemy, and he has this kind of in just inherent empathy for her that becomes love, obviously. But yeah. you get the sense he would do this for anyone yes. in this in this way, and it is just this really compelling. Um, then kind of a procedural sequence of them figuring out how the hell do we get off of here and live. And, and by the end of it, man, it has set up like the main narrative thread of the series with, with the two leads, the romantic leads. But it has also given you such a unique and compelling lead in Shiro. It has given you such a very different perspective on the war. It is like if you are not hooked by the end of this episode, I don't know what to tell you. It is such a good premiere. Yeah, and it definitely it sets up for Shido is the dynamic for that character that I really like that speaks really well to the sort of Vietnam story influences here or also um, I'm currently doing All Quiet on the Western Front with my Ten Honors kids which I also did last year which I think I talked about at some point on there because I've talked about Gundam yeah. with my class in relation to it because they're obviously All Quiet being one of the most influential war stories ever written is influential to Gundam in lots of places yeah. um, but this is one of this very much your the individual soldiers are not necessarily like, you know, ideological zealots for whatever their side is, right? Mm -hmm. There are lots of reasons why people like Shido and the rest of the OHMS team are in the military um, that don't necessarily have to do with their, like, driving need to squash the Xeon bid for independence for the colonies or whatever, right? They're not necessarily politically motivated all the time. And so this sense of mutual respect he has and this feeling of, for Shiro, as an individual, there is no merit, really, in killing other, like, enemy soldiers if they are unarmed, right? He has no need to go out and exterminate every single last Xeon person um, that could possibly potentially add to their war effort. Because that's not the perspective we have on the war. And I think it sets that up so well. And it makes for a really endearing and compelling lead and a dynamic for the show with that perspective that you have someone who's like, doesn't, you know, Shido himself doesn't seem to like really fully understand why he is fighting in the military. He seems to just kind of ended up here, um, as lots of young people do. And he's struggling to figure out what that means and what's the right and wrong thing to do. But clearly like killing an unarmed person is the wrong thing to do. And working with someone else to try to survive in this like hopeless scenario is the right thing. And he's also someone who can see the forest for the trees. Yes. And know... If I just killed this random woman, I would also die because uh -huh. we need to do this together. Yes. And like, there's not going, you know, the war is not going to turn on whether or not I kill this one person in front of me, you know? Yeah. Um, and there is, you know, so much of Gundam is about to kill or not to kill. But there's something that is, and again, it's extremely explicit in yeah. this show. Because Shiro, his whole thing is the orders he gives his team are come back alive. But there's something about the sanctity of life for this guy. That he actually believes in. Like that is his guiding principle. Is that the people important to him shouldn't die for nothing. Yeah. And that is something the show really engages with. Um, so let's talk about Shiro for a second. Mm -hmm. as, as our lead here. Because part of what I think is also so astonishing about War for Two. The, the premiere. Is that it really leans into he is a wholly unique Gundam protagonist. For what we've had so far. Yeah. Um, and even I think for a lot of later Gundam. Um, in that, you know, we've had like, you know, in, in F91 and in Stardust Memory, slightly older Gundam boys, but they're still Gundam boys. Yeah. They're still like, you know, this is their first girlfriend and they are coming of age and all that stuff. And Shiro's not. He's like mid-20s. He's a He's man. He's 23 years old, according to the official Gundam wiki. And I always think official Gundam ages are too low. <laughs> yes. 
23 years old, that like, that's yeah. very reasonable. Like, yeah. that's, you know, that's relatively old for, like, the position he's in in the military. Right. Yeah. But he's been around. You sense that Ina is not the first woman he's ever looked at. You know, that kind of thing. Uh-huh. Like, like, I mean, to put it crass, he's not, like, he's not a virgin. He's not someone who's, yeah. like, literally and, like, the figuratively of, like, he is an innocent. You yeah. know? He is a dude who has been around the block who has been in combat situations before. He is not jaded in the way you could be from that. Um, but it, this also, this is pointedly not a coming-of-age story. Um, and, and this is someone who is a little more set in their ideas. That's not to say he doesn't have an arc and things he learns. He very much does. But it is just a wholly different arc than the Amaro archetype. And that is something that makes this series, I think, so unique and memorable. Yeah. So to, get, to put it into perspective, though, with Shido's age, he is two years older than Nina um, relative in yes. Stardust Memory, which is the ages in Stardust Memory in particular are fucked up. Yeah, no, they make no sense. <laughs> you think about that, because Nina absolutely feels way older than Shido to me. Um, yeah, I mean, Shiro is probably an enlisted man who, like, went to the academy and, and like, literally... Yeah, he probably, officer. like, yeah, he probably graduated out of high school went to the academy because yeah. for you know whatever reasons and like it because he would have been in the military for a while before the one year war started yes yeah which yeah. is different than most of our protagonists who are people who have no real connection to the military and get kind of jumped into it um when some sort of tragedy occurs he's sort of like captain bright but as the protagonist of the series yeah because he's coming from probably that same kind of profile um and and thrown into a very different kind of leadership position here um, like four people and not a ship that is the core of the entire strategy of the Federation. Uh-huh. Um, but yeah, so... And he's also, one small detail I like about him as a character is that he is, um, you know, even though he's fighting for the Earth Federation, he is from space, right? Yeah. He's, and so that's a big part of episode two is it's the first time he's actually been on Earth. Um, and I do love the Earth Federation's shitty... Uh, tendency to get pilots that are not trained to fight in whatever gravity situation they're in <laughs> and sending them there without any training, uh, which has happened both in Stardust Memory and here very explicitly, but also just happens all the time when Gundam is like, this is the first time I've ever been in space and now you're asking me to pilot a mobile suit? This seems bad. This yep. is the first time I've ever been in actual gravity. You're asking me to pilot a mobile suit? Seems like you should have probably done, given me a week of training or something before you sent me on my first mission, but Okay. Uh, he is voiced by Nobuyuki Hiyama Yes Who uh, Great actor Lots of different things uh, I like notably here He is Link in uh, Ocarina Le- of Time Yeah yeah. So he's Ocarina of Time Majora's Mask um, And Smash Brothers in Melee He is Link Yeah um, So he is He is like my Link Yes Because he is, it is definitely the like It's the one me, in your head Yeah the, me, the one I think of Which obviously that's like He doesn't have voiced lines But when you think of Link going Yeah like, it's very clearly his voice, um, because, yeah, he has a very distinctive anime yell. Um, like, I don't even know how you describe his... It's so, dis- like, singular. No, it is. And it's, sounds when he's, like, shouting. Uh, in episode 10, when yeah. he has his big moment, you know, I want to live. Oh, you need that shout. It's, it's a great performance. Yes, I mean, no, I, it's I, a phenomenal I, performance. Yeah. Um, he's For me, Hiyama, uh, like, his big claim to fame is he's Hiei in Yu Yu Hakusho. If you've seen any Yu Yu Hakusho in Japanese, like, you know how, like really iconic that performance is um and you, you, you know it's iconic because he got, kind of got typecast as that character after that point because uh, yeah. that's a lot of what his credits are but yeah Hiyama's fantastic it is, and he does a very good job because I do feel like Shiro is slightly outside of the normal character he plays as because the normal character he plays is either the like 
an, an Amuro type um, that is a little bit, well, maybe not more Amuro, maybe a little bit more Judo side of Gundam protagonist, but that more like really hot-headed kind of character, he plays that a lot, or he plays the Hiei type kind of like aloof and just like very dismissive and insulting to people and thinks he's like way better than everyone else. Um, yeah. And those are the two kinds of characters he usually plays as. And Shido is just, He's not any of those extremes, right? Which kind of makes him feel fairly unique as an anime protagonist. And he has all those elements, though. And it's 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 you can tell it's a role that he gets to stretch his legs with because you go to those different areas. Because he is like in episode two, he does some hot headed shit, but it's not his main defining attribute. No, yeah, like a lot of times he's pretty calm, he's pretty level headed, he's like fairly normal. Um, And like, I mean, one of his main defining traits to me is that he's a little bit naive um, for like the position that he's in. Mm Um, but yeah, it's a phenomenal performance, um, and Hiyama's just... I, I just love his voice. I love hearing him in anything, because it just sounds yeah. so fucking good. So you want to talk about episode two, Gundam's in the Jungle? Yes. And I think here we can also bring in, just talking about the rest of the team, and of course, as the title tells us, this is the... Now we're in it. This is the Gundam's in the Jungle. Yep. You have to just try to not think about the continuity of there being too many Gundams in this war, but that's everything outside yeah. of OG Gundam. But to be fair, like, I think the way that... 08th MS team like this is what makes sense to me is like we have you, you we have the Gundam the original the experimental RX-78-2 prototype thing that Amuro is piloting which is the best of them because it's unique um but that you know was more or less finished several weeks ago at this point uh they would have already been in some sort of mass production of worse versions of the Gundam that right. we have here um, with the Gundam ground types that are clearly very good, but they're not, they don't feel like this is like a phenomenally better machine than a Zaku, right? No, they can't go fly around all over the place. Exactly. So it's like yeah. clearly not as powerful as Amuro's Gundam. And it's like, this makes way more sense to me and I think is more in the spirit of Gundam as a franchise to be like, this is a massive war effort that, that right. engulfs the entire Earth and it's the Earth's sphere with the space colonies. There should be more than just the one Gundam and it, for me, fixes... A little thing that feels off if, about the original series. If you read Gundam: The Origin, the manga, this fits with that continuity. Yes, exactly. where like that that one kind of subtly shifts it to like they have plenty of mobile suits. The Gundam they're trying to make is like their killer weapon, and it's been prototyped for a long time. Yes, and so, there would have been these sort of like mass-produced versions of the Gundam that would have just started entering service yes. at this period of the war. For me, that's like this fits more with like the logic of how Gundam works better than the we have to have the Gundam be the only Gundam that exists because we have to make the toy and it's yes. you know supposed to be a show for kids even though any child who watches this show is going to be traumatized for the rest of their life yes um, and those Gundam ground types Sean those are good designs yes I like the um, again keeping with like the Vietnam theme I have no idea if like this is a specific inspiration or not but it makes me think of the things they carried the like classic Vietnam novel um, which the title of that novel comes from all the shit the soldiers soldiers have to carry all the time, like their personal effects, and then all the shit they need to do with, like, you know, to do their military, whatever they're assigned to do, their missions. And I like that the Gundam ground types have these massive fucking backpacks on the back that have all their, like, gear and shit in it um, that they're, like, trudging through the jungle with is a really great, like, visual indicator to distinguish these Gundams from a standard other Gundam. Yeah, like there are no radical new mobile suit designs in 8th MS team for obvious reasons, but it is a lot of like like things like the ground types 
or or some of the GMs you see in the series, yeah. or um, my big blue boy that we'll get yeah. to later, where it's just it's very clearly this is Kunio Okawara. It is like a a really like like heart of Gundam Gundam style designs, refined, really well animated, and I think those ground type Gundams, like again, like they're not. They're not like the new Gundam and Char's Counterattack or something where it's like, holy fucking shit, what did they do? But boy, are they pleasing to look at and they look really good in a fight. And I also think there's just a lot of, in that very like Okawara tradition, a lot of thought put into the functionality of the mobile suits in this mm-hmm. series, um, which is also just part of the military on the boots story, or boots on the ground storytelling yep. we're doing. Um, we've both made that mistake. Yes. Now. It's great. Um, that you get, and I think those those ground types, I, I love the way they use like white and beige in this uh-huh. series. Because you get it on a lot of like the, the GMs, like especially near the end when like um, both Shiro and... Um, the woman, what's her uh, name? Karen. Karen have lost their Gundams, and yeah. so they're in sort of these shittier, like, GM-style things, and they're those kind of white beige suits. There's just a lot of good, like, those kind of colors, too. Yeah, because it is, like, the a lot of the color palette for the mobile suits is, is like, washed out more, mm-hmm. um, which makes them blend in better than, like, the big, brighter colors you get in a standard Gundam TV show. Um, and, yeah, definitely, like, makes them sit into the environment better. It makes the, like, the design feels like it fits the tone of the more grounded Vietnamese-style military yeah. story they're doing. Let's talk about the Vietnam of it all. Yes. Because it's interesting. I mean, they, they definitely, I think, this is an interesting one to compare to a show I'm sure we will talk about at some point, which is Armored Trooper Vodums. Yes. Which I've been watching. I'm, I, I kind of, I had to do, go watch other things, including the Gundams we've been talking about. Mm-hmm. So I was in the middle of the um, Vietnam section of Vodums, which is the second arc. What do they call that? The I don't remember okay, off the top okay, of my head okay. what they're like fake like fake Vietnam because is. it's you know uh, Vodums is set in like outer space in like a different galaxy, right. so it's like the planet of Vietnam basically yes. in the same way that Star Wars has like I mean that is what Indoor is is the planet of Vietnam also in yeah. Star Wars so yeah um, but like I think with something interesting if you've seen Vodums you know that their Vietnam section I mean that show is mid eighties. It is like, so you would have had a bunch of Hollywood Vietnam films are out by that yeah. point. You would have had things like The Deer Hunter that it pulls really strongly uh-huh. from. Yeah. I mean, literally the second episode in Fake Vietnam in Vodums has the fucking Russian roulette thing, which was not a thing that happened in Vietnam, but is in the movie The Deer Hunter. So now in like the public memory, it's yeah. something that happened in Vietnam. Um, and, and the Vodums one also really gets the like kind of seedy underbelly of like these clubs where deals are going down. It's really sweaty and like you feel the kind of like the, the heat and the grime of it all. And it's also a very dark section of the story. Yeah. And so I think that one is like very informed by not just the aesthetics of Vietnam, but like a lot of the themes and films that come out of that. I think 8th MS Team, and this isn't a criticism, it's just an observation, is more kind of a surface aesthetic thing there than it is like a tonal or thematic thing it goes for because if it were going in that direction, a lot more people would die and it would be, I think, quite a darker show, whereas this is a fairly upbeat Gundam show. So I think what it allows the show to do is have these really unique settings where you are in the jungle, it's hard to see your opponent, there's a lot of like strategic thinking, like just movement on the ground is something that comes into play a lot. Um, and you have things like that going on. You get really cool shots like Gundam's like going through the fucking river, which mm-hmm. is great. Um, but I think it's interesting when you say the Vietnam thing, and I was surprised by this the first time I watched it. If you just describe the show as Gundam in Vietnam, I think you might be a little surprised by the content of it, especially because the second half of the show... Yeah, the second half of the show gets pretty far away from it. Like, specifically, the finale is completely removed from that element. I think, for me, where it comes from is more 
the attitudes of like the the attitude of the military is right. the thing that feels the most directly like inspired from Vietnam. That and like the tactics and things you get because obviously you have like the gorillas that are in the forest, um, and you have the like limited sightline, what's going on, um, all that kind of stuff, and like that's clearly inspired by the sort of things you would see in a Vietnam movie. Um, but for me, it is just more that sense of none of these people really give a shit about what they're doing. Yes. They're just in the scenario and they can't help but continue with the momentum. Like they, Because if they tried to leave, they'd be fucking killed. Um, they'd be shot or they'd be put in jail by the side that they're working for. And that is, to me, like the attitude the show has with the military is the Vietnam part of it. I think that's a great yeah. way to put it, yeah. And, and obviously, Vodums does not get into that because it's about a guy who is like special. Yeah, because Kitako's not on any side. He's, right. he's on his own side. Yes. Um, yeah. Um, so, but I think they're interesting points of comparison because I think you could probably argue they might not have ever done Eight the Mess Team if if Vodums oh, was not. Yeah, Vodums I think was yeah. a clear inspiration. Yeah. That section of Vodums, it's like they are fairly different. But having the first time I'd watched the Eight the Mess Team, I had not seen Vodums. So this is the first time I've seen it since I watched Vodums, and it is pretty clear to me that it is obviously an influence, like both here and in other places. Like we've had, I mean, Stardust Memory was made mostly by people who came from Bottoms more than Gundam. Right. So it's like had a lot of influence. In yeah, places. Bottoms was, is not like the biggest hit in the world, but for Sunrise, it's a clear touchstone for yeah. them like as a company. Um, and yeah, so so I think that's interesting. It's, it's presentation of Vietnam is interesting. Um, and I agree with that whole attitudinal thing, which you get right off the bat here with all the people. And like, let's talk about the different members of the team. Yeah. Because you've got Michael, or is it Mikkel? Mikkel, I think Mikkel. is how it's supposed yeah. to be. It's like more Russian-y. Yeah, you have Mikkel, who's the, the, the little boy who's actually a man. But he yes. has his girlfriend back home, Bibi. Um, Bibi. Bibi. Who he is constantly writing to. And you have Elidor, who is... Elidor is the one I get the sense was like fucking drafted. Because he yes. does not want to be here. He is a musician. He's got his song that is he's really excited at one in one episode it's going to be on the radio and and he has just checked the fuck he's good at his job but he's checked the fuck out yeah and then you have like two actual soldiers in Karen and Sanders and i think that team dynamic is really fun yes uh yeah they're all great characters um you have like a really strong cast here um in particular uh Elidor who is voiced by KG Fujiwara who unfortunately he passed away earlier this year um but like a phenomenal voice actor um, who's just been, I mean, in a bunch of oh, shit. Oh, his rap sheet is um, yeah. long. But he's, specifically, like, I most directly remember, if you played Final Fantasy VII Remake in Japanese, or if you've watched Advent Children, he's Reno, um, one of the Turks. Oh, that's uh, sad. It's like a very, yeah. yeah, like a very iconic performance. He's one of the main characters from uh, Gintama as well. Um, so, yeah. yeah. Like, great, great performer. And, oh, he's, oh, yeah, we will also, we will meet him again um, in Double Gundam. I've just remembered yeah. that, that he's also all up to that He's show Hughes well. in Full Metal Alchemist. I mean, if if there's a, you will, there will be someone you loved that he voiced, um, if you look yeah. at his rap sheet. Um, also, I love this, he is the he is the guy who dubbed all of Robert Downey Jr. as Iron Man. Yes, that is also Adventures. true. Yeah, if you've seen, and I would recommend, because you can find them on YouTube, people have, like, made clips, because it is just very funny to listen to, like, modern anime voice actors play Avengers um, because yeah, yeah he plays Iron Man he does a good job it's a very different sounding Iron Man but he does a great job of it um, then you also have uh, Mami Koyama who plays Karen um, who we have seen before because she is also the voice of Cassilia Zabi in the original Mobile Suit Gundam. Oh yeah, I, I was I'm like, this sounds familiar, and I didn't look it up, so that makes sense. Yeah, and she will continue to because I think she's also yeah she's one of the main characters in Sea Destiny as well. Um, okay. So we will see her again. Um, she is also Jonathan. You would know her best as the voice of Launch uh, in 
Dragon Ball. Yes, because yeah, yeah Shohei, yeah, yes. I, I know the name. From that, that and yeah. and uh, she's also the original voice of Arale from the Doctor Slump stuff. So yes. all over. If you like your Toriyama, uh, Mommy Toriyama, all over that. But then also yep. she is, she is like our queen before our queen uh, with Cassilia Zabi, who's not quite Haman Karn, but is like the stepping stone that Tomino needed to create to get to the queen of she, space, Haman Kaecilia Karn. walked so Haman Karn could run. Exactly, yes. That's very much what it, it feels like. Um, and then you have Sanders is the great yeah. Tesho Genda. And Tesho Genda is an institution. He is like yeah. from that generation with like Shigeru Chiba and Daisuke Gori, who are the character actors who are in everything. Yeah. And but one thing is Tesho Genda is like he is the big deep voiced villain character in a lot of things. Like right now he is on One Piece um, as the the current big bad of of the the Wano arc, um, uh, whose name is for some reason escaping me, and that's bad. I'm a huge One Piece fan, but anyway, um, you know that's the kind of thing he usually does. And and here he is the like gentle giant Sanders, and I really love that. It's a little out of like it's it's fun to hear Tesho Genda in that kind of register and yeah. i really appreciate that in this yeah. show and we have also heard him very recently because he was also kelly in stardust memory yep. um so you know our having tesho ginda and vegeta be lovers is something we will never really be able to have <laughs> it's our sad fate that they didn't take stardust memory in the right direction he's also slugger law in the original mobile suit gundam so he's oh i forgot I, he was slugger as, law, as with yeah. all these voice actors i mean this is one of the things that's fun about um you know, 08 the mess team is something what we'll see as we start like moving on past this to future Gundam shows is this is a very big turning point of it's one of the last Gundams before like the modern era of anime where we'll see a lot of this generation of voice actors kind of phase out a little bit. Yeah. Um for the new really popular voice actors we'll get in the two thousands. Kaido, by the way, is the One Piece character I'm saying about okay. Tesho Genda. Before I get any comments on that, I am sorry, Tesho Genda, you are so great. Kaido is great. Um, and and I'm so glad he's he gets to be one of the big One Piece big bads. Because, you know, yes. he's getting up there. He's 72. He's not going to be around forever. Um, and, and, yes, his Gundam roles are great. And this is one of my favorites of his. Yeah, so it's a really lavish uh, voice cast that we have for our main characters. Um, and, yeah, they, they all just stand out really well. Um, they make such a strong impression. And, and especially it's that thing when you get to the end of the series, you've been on the whole journey with them. Like, the personalities of all of them and how they all interact, I think, just, like, land so well that when, like, you have you have that emotional investment, very much so, by the time you get to the end of the series and feel like this is our team. Mm -hmm. This this is the 08th MS team of the 08th yeah. MS team. And it it's one of the things, that. like, the series had to do. If it didn't yeah. nail a fun team with good, more importantly, team dynamics, there just would be no show. Yeah. And there is. And, and even though, like, it's not an ensemble in the sense that, like, Shiro is the main character and always is, but you have to have those supporting characters so it feels like you are you are invested in the same team Shiro is. Um, and they do that very well. Yeah. And when you so when you get to episode 10, or sorry, not episode 10, episode 2, um, one of the dynamics that I think works really well is having Shiro is the commander, but he's new. Um, and so having um, Elidor and Karen be there who are, like, the remainders of whatever the OHMS team used to be. They say that, um, I think in episode one, they have a brief line where they're like, your old captain is like back at the medical hospital um, because, of, you know, he couldn't take the stress or like the trauma or whatever it was. Yeah. Um, and so it's like their previous commander, it's like the implications that the previous commander effectively chickened out because it was like too hard to be in the shit. Um, and so they are just left here as like veterans who have been on this, you know, front for God knows how long, fighting this the shitty war in the shitty fucking jungle for no good reason. Um, and Shido walks into that, and particularly I think Karen, um, I love her attitude where she's like, 
she's not as high of a rank, so she can't command the uh, the battalion effectively. But um, she's, she's has the, experience, so she should be the one to commanding everyone. Well, she's the jaded veteran. I yeah. actually love this as a sort of type inversion that um, the the girl in the group yeah. is the really the the woman obviously is the one who is the kind of jaded veteran. Like Sanders comes sort of close, but Sanders, I think you get a sense is. Uh, he's he's been around the block, but in a more tragic way. And I don't know if he's ever like been in one place very long. Yeah, it's and, hard to imagine him like commanding other people, or, right. like he, or like he's a guy who's like really good at following the orders and can execute yeah. them very well. But you couldn't yeah. ever see him in command. Yeah, but Karen is like she's I, one. You get the sense that she's been in Gundam Vietnam for a long time. Yeah. at this point, and she's probably been in other places stationed, and she's good at what she does, and she also just has no expectations that things will ever go well, yeah. which you need in your Gundam Vietnam story. Yeah, and she has no faith in anyone else other than herself and her yeah. ability to execute on stuff. Um, yeah, and I just yeah. think like she's such a like vivid, effective character. Yeah, and really, these first six episodes are a series of very episodic. Um, you know, single episode stories that all kind of focus on a different member of the team. Yeah. Um, and I think some, not all of them are equally effective, but but some of them are just you know stone cold classics. I think Gundam's in the Jungle sort of splits between Karen and Shiro a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, the Demon Overhead episode four is your Sanders episode. The Broken Order Stand By is your Elador episode with a brutal fucking ending. Yeah. And then Battle Line on the Burning Sand, which is both one of the best episodes and one of the best Gundam episode titles, uh-huh. uh, is is your. Um, Mikel episode, yeah, uh, and it's just a fucking killer episode. <laughs> yeah, yes. and yeah, and, and because but he that's his episode, and it's like he kind of like shares double duty with uh, Elador on their episode. Yes, yeah, yeah. So which which ones here do we? I don't know if we need to go to, into each one in super depth, but. Um, they all have fun things to talk about. Yeah, maybe just like talk about some of like the sequences from some of these episodes we really like. Which like with episode two, I love the I just love the whole construction of episode two of that the first half of the episode is very much like Shiro is here, you meet all the characters and he's immediately thrown into this um mission um where he's you know overconfident. Uh he's an idiot as all Gundam pilots are idiots where it's like you have never fought on an actual gravity on the earth before, so you probably should take it a little bit slow, but you know, you always have something to fucking prove. Um and then it, he gets lost and then the second half of the episode is him like wandering around trying to find this one other Zaku pilot that's also in the jungle while he's like and it's this this feeling of like decompression and solitude you get after like the hectic chaos of the first half of the episode and he's just like hanging out and like you know finds a river to drink some water and like washes his clothes or he like falls into the mud and like has the leeches on him and it's the first time this dude has ever been on an actual planet and not in a space colony before and that feeling of just like space it finally gives you to just sort of sit with this character in the world um i just think is such a satisfying well-constructed piece of storytelling oh the second half of episode two is one of my favorite stretches in eighth ms team of this like little kind of cat and mouse game with shiro and this other pilot he's searching for and as you say surviving in the jungle him kind of like when he finds his other pilot like getting the beat on him with the gun and everything like it i think this this episode makes the absolute most effective use of the just Vietnam setting like not like the attitudinal stuff but I mean like the jungle setting itself Mm -hmm. you know it's so good at that and man Sean so these first two episodes came out on the same tape slash laser disc can you imagine being a Japanese fan in 1996 and bringing this home and seeing these two fucking episodes back to back how fucking 
revelatory that would be. Yeah, it, it is because, you know, it's also the one thing we haven't mentioned is also obviously it's an OVA, so like the production values are so yes. extremely high. Um, so it's like you're getting these really well-told stories, but you're also getting them at this just like absurdly high quality of animation that is, yes. just, it feels so fucking luxurious. <laughs> Particularly, I think, on the mobile suits. Yeah. Just they've rarely looked better. This is like... Up there, I think, with Turn A or F91 in terms of the best mobile suit animation. Mm -hmm. um, it's phenomenal. Yeah, there's such a care taken to the mechanics of the mobile suits all across the show. Which I think works particularly well. And it's like really clear in Gundam's in the Jungle because that's the one that most fully uses the juxtaposition of the mechanical Gundam with like the lush natural landscape of this jungle. And that like really nailing that sense of that these things are mechanical in an animation sense is so important. And it's something that different Gundam shows, I think, sometimes lose sight of um, that, like, Tomino's Gundams typically are very good at is keeping the sense of these are machines. Like, while they look like people and they can occasionally move kind of like people, and we'll talk about this when we get to episode 10, how they use animation there to communicate this difference in ability with piloting them. But, like, for most people, these are just machines that are, like, moving through what are effectively, like, pre-recorded motion cycles. So it's like you're not, when you're piloting the Gundam, you're not, like, moving different levers to move every single part of the leg to get it to step forward, right? You're, pressing, you're basically pressing the walk button, and it starts a pre-recorded walk cycle, and it starts moving forward, and you alter it with your controls. Um, that's, like, the logic of how they're supposed to be able to move. And this communicates that so well in the animation. And it's on display really well here in these early episodes where um, our pilots are less experienced. And so when they're less experienced, the, the motions feel even more mechanical because they are more just, we're just doing this like pre-recorded, like he's like move forward two steps, then it stops, then it crouches, then it raises the gun, then it blah, blah, blah. And it's not a smooth movement between all these different states. It's very like rigid. Yes, yes, absolutely. This episode also we get our first meeting with uh, Kiki, briefly. Yes. Who is one of the other main characters who's part of the, the, the natives, basically, in the, in, the, yeah. in the Gundam Vietnam. And um, which they, they might very well be in actual Vietnam. I mean, it is Asia. They don't say where they yeah. are, but um, it's, it's basically they're somewhere in Asia. Um, but anyway, Kiki we meet in the, in the, uh, the bathing sequence briefly. Um, which also is how you know it's an OVA because you just have a full-on full frontal nudity show. Yes, they, they drew the nipples on for this one. Um, oh, yeah. Which usually they don't. Uh, yeah, it's weird. Like, I, <laughs> it's like, I don't mind it for the, um, they do it for like the, there's like like weird like pornographic magazines and stuff in the background that soldiers look at and they'll yeah. draw nudity and it's like, I think that like fits the tone. Um, and it's like you have like a very clear one in the ending theme song sequence that always just like cracks me up that they like put that in there. Yeah, this part with Kiki just feels very weird, and I wish they hadn't done it. It's a little gratuitous. Yeah. I mean, the scene itself is fine in so much as it's it's a, a meeting that sets up the events of episode yeah. three. But yeah. But speaking yeah. of episode three, which is the time limit on trust, this I think what you would roughly say is the Karen episode, because she's sort of leading the other half of the team, because the mm -hmm. whole idea is they're going to try to liberate this, this, this village, and Shiro goes one way because he thinks he knows the terrain, He's an idiot. Um, he's not an idiot, but he's overconfident again. Yeah. Uh, and he says, we've got three hours. And so Karen leads the other side of the team. And they have to go attack this, this, this. They're not attacking the village. They're trying to attack the Xeon people who are there. And, and Shiro is waylaid by Kiki and the, the other... Um, I guess you, they're, they're the natives. They're kind of resistance they're, fighters. They call them the gorillas. The gorillas, yeah. yeah. With like like gorilla fighter. Not, Gri they're yeah. not like silverback gorillas. Although no. that would also be a very good TV show. Yeah, I'd watch that. 
Yeah, they should do an, a, a Gundam show that is entirely like apes piloting the mobile suits that also look like apes, and there's no English in it or no language at all. I mean, yeah. it's just like it's like the Planet of the Apes movies with Andy Serkis. At most, they do some sign language. That'd be a very good movie. Yeah, or a TV show. Yeah, no, fifty episodes. I want the whole. Yes, yeah, so the fifty episode TV show, and then give me the three the compilation movie trilogy yes. afterwards with some nice film animation in there. Yes, um, but no, I think this is a good one. This is another one that just in terms of the military fiction strategy aspect, I love because there's a literal ticking clock, and when you do a literal ticking clock and do it well, I'm into that. Yeah, and this is where the ending sequence is particularly satisfying, where Shido like uses the river to sneak up on them and is like jumping out of the river with the Gundam and it's like this is it is very cool like yes. it's like the yeah the, like the slow build up to like the military tactics of you know it's a very long flanking maneuver that gets you know distracted basically by Kiki's interference and um, that's also where you meet Kiki's father who is voiced by Ron Burrell because he has to be in every single Gundam yep. but we are not done seeing him yet um, but he's also here oh, um, he's great I love he's got an eye patch I love his sort of attitude where like it's not that he doesn't care about Kiki. You see this in a couple episodes, but he knows she can take care of herself. So he's yeah. very like a kind of hands-off parent. It's good stuff. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so it's like, in, so he then enlists the aides of the gorillas so that he gets, you know, the thing that like he said he had that he didn't have, which is like a sense of what like the landscape was. And so he uses their knowledge to help go up the river. Um, and yeah, just using the cover of the water to help him take them out, and then he has a brief fight with uh, Norris piling a Zaku underwater that is also very cool. Yeah. 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 It's just, yeah. I mean, all these episodes just have some of, like, the best action um, that also... And I feel like... I believe you made this comment on Twitter, and it's very true, that um, especially in this era of the show, or the first half, um, it is the most original Mobile Suit Gundam-style action yep. that's very focused on the details. It's not about cutting back and forth as people are shooting wildly and like missing over and over again and the kind of filler you get in a lot of action in mecha shows. It's way more about here's like one decisive move that this pilot does that it destroys the other pilot. And it's yeah. like an exchange of two to three moves at most. And I, I, I posted a little clip on Twitter that blew me away. It's like 10 seconds from episode three where Sanders is firing an RPG. And it is just the movement of like, he's alerted by a shot to him, shot of him like pulling out the bazooka. And it is the most luxuriously animated, yeah. like all the motions of that fire, boom, dodge. Like it is just like the succession of shots, the storyboarding, the final animation, the sound. It is just, mwah, it is so perfect. And it's like some of those, I actually recorded many more moments that I put on Twitter. Uh -huh. Because this is a show I, I watched uh, this time fully on my iPad, which I love to do because I can take screenshots easily and I can just do little films and like get my little clips that I put together and those are useful to have. Uh, and it is, it's it's fun. There are so many good moments like that. Yeah, and it's just the attention to detail and the animation and the choreography. Um, and it's just that thing that's like, it's one of those things that I love about OEMS team that it just captures some of that stuff that I don't think any Gundam captures as well as the original Mobile yeah. Gundam. Or like they often don't try to go for this thing it, um, that the original Gundam did. You know what it feels like is it feels like speaking of our friend Ramba Rao. Yeah, I feel like this show's north star for action is Ramba Rao versus Amuro. Yes, where the arms come off and then they rip the compartments apart and are looking at each other. That fight feels like what every fight in this show is sort of aiming for, which is really grounded, tactile, fast, and precise. Yes, and it's like it all comes down to Ram Rao lunges, Amro ducks, Amro swings the sword and hits Ram Rao. Yeah. Like, that's what that fight mostly is. I mean, literally, in episode 10, the final blow of our favorite Gundam action sequence yeah. in episode 10 is that. Yeah, it's exactly yeah. that. Yeah. 
So, yeah, episode three, very good. Episode four, the demon overhead, is is sort of our first one where we're getting a little sense of the overarching plot with Ina, because mm-hmm. this is where we sort of see the Opsilus for the first time. Um, and, and at some point in here, we meet Guineas, who is a very minor Gundam villain, but one I love because he is so fucking crazy. Yeah, he, yeah he's <laughs> definitely like... Because yeah, let's because we haven't really talked about the Ina side at all, so this is probably good. Well, it doesn't really come in until episode seven heavily, yeah. but you do meet the you get a little bit of her in these early episodes. Yeah, because you're you're kind of checking in on them, and yes, I do like Guineas as like among the pettiest of all Gundam villains. That's like he's just so focused on his own bullshit, doesn't care about anything else. Going, I on. think he kills more Zeon soldiers than any of our heroes. Oh yeah, series. no, he, he kills almost everybody working for him, other than the people that get blown up by the Federation when they escape in that ship. He literally does like a Jonestown, everyone drink the poison scene. Yeah. I mean, I mean the only reason why he doesn't blow up all the people fleeing in the ship is that he just didn't have the chance to. He probably was right. going to get around to it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. In episode eleven. Um, but yes. So so the demon overhead is also our Sanders episode. Yes. Because it is Sanders is called the Shinigami, the Death. If you if you know Death Note, you love that yes. word. Yeah, he's he the, the Grim Reaper, the Death yeah, God, however you yeah. want to translate Shinigami. Because he has been on a couple of teams, and all of in all of his teams, he has been the lone survivor, and he feels like he is jinxed because it's the third mission where he loses his team. And this being the fourth episode, which is the third in Gundam Vietnam, this yeah. is their third mission, and he's all nervous about that. Uh, and and Shiro is this is where we first really get a sense of like Shiro being not just a leader tactically, but like to his men. Yes, um, and trying to be like. No man, this is okay. And of course, they do. They do win the day. I don't think this is like one of the best or most memorable episodes, but I do love me some um, lovable giant Tesho Genda in this one. Yes. No. Yeah. It's, Sanders is a great character in this. Yeah, yeah. This is his standout episode. As you say, it is like among these. I think it's like the least remarkable. It's still good. Like it's still in terms of like the action you get in that second half, um, and particularly like 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 desperate Sanders trying desperately to try to like make sure that this changes and like he breaks yes. his curse. Um, is very good, um, and so it puts it above action and almost all other Gundam stuff. But for yes. 08 the Mass Team, it's, it is one of the least remarkable episodes. Yeah, I mean, it's a little hamstrung by this one is the only one of the first six that has like a heavy plot thing where it has to introduce, and it mm-hmm. cannot resolve it because the Absolus they just they have to meet it and then it has to go away. Yeah, and that's kind of the idea. Yeah, yes. But then the fifth episode is fifth the episode rules. fifth episode of rules. It's the Elador episode where he is all excited because his song is playing on the radio, and so he just abandons his post. <laughs> yeah, and he, he takes Michael with him, to or Mikael, to go to a town, um, basically to find uh, sex workers. Like, is more or less like, he's <laughs> like, like, we're going to get drunk and we're going to get laid. Is He says in, like, not as many words, um, and yeah, they go down to that town, um, and and it turns out that that town is occupied by the Xeon uh, forces with the Absolutes there, and they get captured. <laughs> yeah. And... They captured, they beat the shit out of each other yeah. in a sequence where I am never sure if they are consciously trying to distract the guard. Or I don't think they are. I think okay. they're legitimately, because, you know, it, it, this is where just like Elidor and Mikel are so, like, such a good pair to put together because they're effectively our comic relief characters. Um, although, you know, I think they're, like, way better than just a comic relief character, but they're the most funny of the characters. Right. And then just getting thrown into this sh- cell and then them being so scared about the fact that they're going to get executed the next day and then just so upset with each other for the dumb shit they've done that they just start beating the shit out of each other <laughs> so hard that the Xeon guard, and it's like he's, like, reading a magazine and, like, just all he wants is to read his magazine and he starts hearing shouting, he looks up and he ignores it, 
And then he hears like some slaps and punches. He looks up and he's like, ignores it, goes back to his magazine. Then he hears like chairs start breaking and furniture exploding. He looks up, he goes back to his magazine. And then when it just sounds like they're like two cats are killing each other. And they're, they're, he <laughs> slightly stands up and is like, what the fuck are you guys doing? And they're just murdering each other and they're beating the absolute shit out of each other. And I mean like Elidor lays him out with a punch intended for Mikkel by yeah. complete accident. Yeah, it's it's a really great sequence that is that is very funny and feels very true to their characters that they are both like so caught up in their own stuff that they're yeah just kicking the shit out of each other because they are the two most sort of grounded characters in that they are they're not there for any ideological reason whatsoever yeah like i feel like both of them were drafted you know mikel just wants to get back to bb elador wants to get back to his band which you know the song that they play is pretty good yeah. They, they also use it as an insert in episode 6 and as the finale song in episode 11. Um, so it's a nice little song. And, and you know, these guys just, the last thing on earth I think they want to do is be in the military. And it's just this frustration coming out. And then it ends with one of the most viscerally brutal action sequences yeah. in all of Gundam. Where Elidor gets fucking shrapnel in the leg and shot in the arm. And the first time I saw this, I totally thought they were just going to kill him because mm-hmm. it is so brutal. Um it's wild. Yeah, yeah. He barely survives. It's like the the, the bloodiest that this show gets. Yeah. Um, yeah, and it is... Yeah, it is a really, like, effective... Especially because so much of the show, this episode is, like, fairly funny because it's those two characters together. It is really effective having that, like, harsh tonal shift there at the end. Yeah. Um, this is also where, because we haven't really talked about it with Elidor, like, one thing I love about him in his role is, like, the whole dynamic of him in this, like, support truck, like, uh-huh. that, like, have, sticks a fucking, like, big cable into the ground, and he just, like, listens in, and, like, that's how they try to figure out where mobile suits are and stuff, is through, like, the vibrations of the Earth. I love the mechanics yeah. of that. It's such a good, like procedural it's like if you like submarine stories or something it's that same kind of thing yeah it's just a really cool idea that's executed so well and then like it's such a music and like sound being part of his uh, defining characteristics because i also like i think it's maybe in the next episode where they have or no it would have been in this episode or the previous one where he they have the moment where um they're he and mikhail are both in the support van and he's got eldor's got like the headphones on and mikhail's like Oh, man, he's working so hard, BB. It's like it's so dedicated, and then, then Eldor like takes it off. It's like, oh, this song on the radio is shit. Yeah, <laughs> like, he realizes he's been listening to music the whole time and hasn't been paying any attention. It's very good. I love it, and I love their dynamic of Mikel. Is basically he thinks he's going to be in a mobile suit, and he's thrown as the support to the support guy. Yes. Yeah. No, but it's good. Elador gets totally fucked up, and honestly, it's an interesting thing this show does in taking one of its main characters off the board for this middle portion of the series Mm -hmm. and making you feel that absence, which I think episode six is very much about. Um, And and I can't really think of another Gundam show. I mean, obviously there are Gundam shows where characters kind of leave and come back and stuff, but but just like, seriously, like he goes off to a hospital somewhere else and if you're a first-time viewer, you're not sure when or if he's going to come back. It's a cool move this show makes. Yeah, and you never cut back to him in the hospital. No. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, on, and if you don't watch Miller's report, you don't even see when he comes back to mm-hmm. the to the team. Um, so, which which is fine. Although I do I do like having that scene in Miller's report where you see that because it's a fun scene. Yeah. Because um, obviously he's not happy about coming back because it fucking sucks. <laughs> no. um, all right, but let's talk about episode six: Battle Line on the Burning Sand. That's such a great title. Yeah, great title. Um, and this is your classic um, middle of 
as a season episode where they're all in the desert and they use the heat as like a metaphor for yes. the tensions in the group rising to a boiling point. There's a similar episode in Double Zeta um, when they're in the jungle there or oh, right. in the desert there. Um, it's, it's a time-honored tradition. Like one of the great metaphors in all of fiction is yes. using heat to represent characters getting upset with each other and passions overflowing. Um, yeah, this is your your Mikkel episode where you, where people finally start calling him on his bullshit with BB, and it's like he's fucking up constantly because he finally got a letter from her that's like, you know what, I I like you a lot, but you're also in the military, and it's like weird that this is the year 0079 of the Universal Century where we have space colonies and we're sending letters to each other all the time. Feels like slightly weird i don't know um, obviously she doesn't say that i do just love you know in order to keep the vietnam aesthetic they have fucking pen pals um and all that shit when they're on earth um but yeah it's great i i i love that that i also think i wonder if bb's like i don't know if i want to date this this four foot tall kid I, I, that I've i don't high school. think that she actually has like my read on it is entirely like be like yeah they were friends from her perspective they're only friends Mikkel is has his whole crush on her. Yeah. Um. And then once like the letters start coming, I think BB realizes, oh, he's reading something totally different in this. I have to like let him down easy. Is how I I read their relationship. Yes. So I love the setup of this one because you you they they are trying to capture the Absalus basically, and they are out in the desert. They know it's going to come past this point, and they have set up this this good little plan of how they're going to do it. And the entire team, except Mikael, is a pretty well-oiled machine at this yeah. point. Sanders and Karen and Shiro are all doing their jobs really well. And I love that we have the like test version of the sequence opening the episode. And then the actual full version at the end. And then the middle is just this long waiting. Yeah. And I think that's something this episode does really well. Is that it's content to just not have any action for like the bulk of the episode. And it's just them waiting around for something to happen. And fighting, and as you say, the tensions and the heat rising. It is a time-honored tradition in fiction, in military fiction, in all kinds of fiction. But this one just does it really fucking well. Yeah. And it is gorgeously animated. Yeah, it's gorgeously animated. It's just got such a great mood. It's also just so visually distinct because you've yep. been in the jungle for since episode two. Obviously, we were in space for episode one. Um, and so you have this like very different aesthetic. Um, I do love because you know they're like basically over this massive canyon. And then in the side of one of the walls of the canyon is just carved out with a laser so they know that the Absaros has been here um, for some sort of test flight. And I love the detail that the like rock has melted to glass yes. in the path of where the laser went. Um, it's just so... It, it, it's very Gundam, and it's just a really effective little moment early in the episode as they sort of establish what's going on where Karen like cracks it and looks at it like it's glass. Like the beam weapon was hot enough to totally melt this into glass. That is consistently something 8th MS team does well, is the heat of lasers. Yes. They do it here. They do it in episode 7, where they make a little hot spring for themselves. In episode 11, like, the characters get, like, burned alive, and 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 Ina gets, like, her back burned and stuff. They just, they, they, they remember, right, these are giant lasers with the heat of the fucking sun in them. Yeah. This is, this is crazy stuff. Um, yes, very good. Uh, this, this episode also has the sequence where after kind of tensions overflow... They're all waiting around, and then Elidor's song comes on the radio. Mm -hmm. And I remember, so so when I watched this again this week, I was watching through, and when you get to episode five and Elidor gets all fucked up, part of me was like, man, should they just, because they kind of take him out and everything, should they have just killed him? I was wondering, like, 
I'm just trying to think of the version of the show where he just actually dies, and I'm like, with that, you know, whatever. And then you get to this scene where his song comes back on the radio, and you find out he's the one who requested it, and he's out there in the military hospital requesting his own song, and I'm like, nope, they made the 100% right decision, because you couldn't have this moment without it, and that moment is a really perfect defining moment of the show for me. Yeah, and I think it's also, um, you know, like, Elidor being sort of, like, the most comic relief character, the one who, like, lifts the tone up um like i think putting him off taking him off the board and then bringing him back in um i think signifies for the audience like where the feelings are in the group and stuff like that yeah and this is a classic moment and it is that that moment where they read the radio reads off who requested it and it's elador like it is a legitimately really funny joke that then all the characters then laugh at it too and so you're laughing along with them is a really great moment yeah and then you get just a rip shit awesome action sequence yeah. with the Absolus that includes one of my favorite shots in this entire series where Shiro is going after it and he's holding onto the side and it just slams him into the wall of the canyon and is pulling him across. Yeah, and it like rips off his mobile suit's arm. Yeah. yeah. That is one of those scenes where like when I'm watching it, I like rewind like over and over to watch that shot because it is crazy how well animated it yeah, is. Yeah, it is that is where you get this like this is a sequence that would just not be anywhere near as impactful if you didn't have the OVA budget. Like, it's like the ability to see all the little bits and bobs fly off of the Gundam as it's getting its arm ripped off against the Rock um, Canyon. So good. It's a great shot. And then this is also pretty notable as being, um, like, up to this point, it is the first OHMS team episode to end on a cliffhanger. Mm -hmm. Because they are all, the rest of them are completely self-contained and, like, they tell the whole story of the episode within that episode and then they end on a final point. Uh, and then the next episode starts up with a different premise for that episode. And this one passes off a baton to the next episode. That The premise for the next episode is going to be Shiro and Aina together again at last. Reunion. Yeah. I mean, it's a really clear like demarcation point. We've hit the halfway point of the series. Now we're kind of kicking into story mode. Yeah. Um, and of course, it's also notably, if this was the first cliffhanger, the sad part about that for fans at the time is there was a 10-month delay yeah. before you saw Reunion and saw the the resolution to this story which god that must have been hard yeah and then this of course again is where the original director dies in a traffic accident so that which motivates that delay um and makes this like such a weird like point of where everything was in transition anyways for the show and then to have that happen on top of all of it like leaves you with episode seven reunion being this kind of weird beast where a lot of it is very good but it also, to me, feels like a very clumsy episode having to shift gears into Romeo and Juliet mode. Interesting, because I felt that a little bit this time, but I really, I'm quite fond of episode seven. So I'm curious to hear your thoughts on it. Before yeah. we get to it, though, I do have one question. Okay. And I don't know if, I, I'm, I'm wondering if you've been able to find anything on this. There are, in the versions we have now, next episode previews for all the episodes. Uh-huh. Were there at the time? Because, like, maybe for six to seven, if they had done some preliminary work on seven, but past this point, there are such long delays episode to episode. I'm really curious if those were added for the DVD or if the original Laserdiscs had them, because I kind of don't know how they would have if it took like 10 months to yeah, do the animation. I'm not sure. My guess is that they originally would have had them. Um, and. They may have been redone, perhaps, yeah. um, but I'm pretty sure that they would have originally still had the next on preview, which, you know, is just like a quick, like, 15-second thing yeah. at the end of the episode. They're quick, but they just yeah. have very polished, finished footage that, like, 
it's kind of surprising how much of like the, like some of like iconic shots from the next episode like like episode 10 ends with a preview that has the closing shot of the series in episode 11 and that didn't come out for another almost year so it's yeah. just stuff like that where i'm like i wonder if this was originally there because i know they did when they did it on dvd do a little bit of work on the series uh, on the japanese side it has some new sound effects and stuff yeah so. i mean that's very standard you almost always on like the home big home video release right. you do you make some adjustments um yeah, yeah like i can't see anything immediate like i'm not entirely sure how to, to google, search for yeah that, how to google that on japanese google um but there's nothing that is like popping up um immediately yeah. so i'm just sure. something i thought about with this one especially because i'm like this this is the single biggest gap in the series was six yeah. to seven um but yeah i almost wonder if it was something like evangelion near the end where they just add random storyboards uh-huh. <laughs> but they probably would not have done that for gundam because they weren't doing a weird avant-garde thing yes it would, um, yeah it would have been really hard to justify that tone thing with yeah. wait the best team compared to eva you could kind of get away with it at least yeah but anyway episode seven reunion so this one is all shiro all aina together um like i said i really like this one there's there's the initial sequence where he has the gundam hanging on to the Apsilus as it is flying through the air, and then he gets off and is climbing up to the cockpit, I think is one of my favorite animated sequences in the show. I really love the stuff later where they make the little hot spring for themselves. I like this one a lot, but I'm curious to hear you you have more mixed feelings on it. Yeah, I think it's mostly that like that stuff is all very good. I think what makes it rough is, I think, the, the shift in Shido and Aina's relationship from there's this, like I'm kind of like curious about this weird girl I met and she gave me like this crazy weird clock that I've had with me um and like you know Shido will usually have like one moment in an episode where he kind of looks at the clock but Aina has not been like an active presence um in the Shido side of the show nor has Shido been an active presence in the Aina side and so forth in episode seven it goes so hard into soap opera mode where Shido just shouts Aina I love you before he falls off the cliff and all that stuff um and I think it's just like it feels like they really just needed the to get that plot part out of the way so that they could move to the second half of the series rather than that character relationship developing naturally. Um, and so it's just like, it feels like they, instead of having that like Romeo and Juliet dial at like the two or three that it had been, they immediately crank it to 11. Um, I mean, they crank it, it to full Shakespeare in the sense yeah. of like, they see each other and immediately declare love. Yeah, and I think it's, it's OHMS team has not been that, up until this point. No, and and so I right. think it's like, that's why I suspect that maybe the originally there would have been some of whatever, like that other episode that just doesn't exist. Because again, it was going to be 12 episodes always. like it, But it, it was not going to have this weird extra weird thing of what we got with Last Resort. So presumably there is an episode's worth of story somewhere in here that would have existed. And I'm guessing this seems like a place that would make sense that you would have another episode with them together before they get separated to make that transition way more natural. Yeah, and I could see that. Um, but for what we get, I mean, I, I think it does the the turn to Shakespeare, maybe not fully gracefully, but I do enjoy it, and I love that it just kind of fucking commits and sticks on that path through the end. Yeah, like of all the things to kind of stumble on, this is the thing to stumble on, because it's like, ultimately, I don't care. Um, this is something where that we talked about with our Star Wars prequel episodes. If people have listened to this, have not gone and listened to the podcast we did re kind of reevaluating the star wars prequels and we are generally speaking pro star wars prequels uh on this podcast one thing we talk about there is like if there's one thing that's easy for me to accept it is two characters falling in love i will just if you just tell me that this has happened in a story i will just go along with it generally speaking because it's like 
it's fine. Most stories that are not love stories that put a love story in them don't do it well. And it's like, I like I am fine with with reunion being the way it is because I think it fulfills the job it functionally needs to fulfill of telling me these two characters are in love so that way the rest of the story can happen and I yeah. will just accept it. Yeah, and, and no doubt, just as in the Star Wars prequels, you could have done it better yeah. in making it more uh, sort of organic to what we've seen so far. But, you know, I am also okay with the Shakespearean something just hit them and this is the equivalent of Romeo going to the balcony except the balcony in this case is a giant fucking mobile armor and yeah. Romeo is hanging on the side and about to die and so he, he blurts out that he loves her. To be fair, what makes that moment in Romeo and Juliet work a lot better is that they are 15 and 13 years old. So. Good point. Good not, point. Not I like mean, in their mid-20s. Yeah. I mean, yes, it's something to always keep in mind with Romeo and Juliet is that Romeo and Juliet are kind of stupid and meant to be. Yeah, they're children. Yes. Yeah, Romeo's been in one relationship with a woman before. Yeah. Eh, and even that, I don't know. That's like, yeah. that's kind of like BB and Mikael. Sure, yes, yeah. He had a very <laughs> BBS relationship with Rosalind. Yes, this is my hot Romeo and Juliet takes. Yes, yes. Uh, listen to Weekly Suit Romeo, yeah. which is our, our Romeo and Juliet podcast. Why is it called Weekly Suit? I mean, branding. I, I don't know. Why didn't we just call it Weekly Romeo and Juliet? We will never know. We'll never know. Uh, but anyway, yes, I, I I do think Romeo um, Romeo Reunion. <laughs> Has quite a few good sequences. I love the different animation aesthetic in this one where you're yeah. in the mountains and you have a lot of cold blues, which we have not gotten so far. Um, Shiro gets fucking frostbite. That sucks. That yeah. continues through the next episode. This is where you do get the, that like really evocative flashback kind of dream sequence with Shiro where you get your first kind of hint of why he's like doing, like why he's in the military still and all the stuff that he's doing is the colony that he was originally from and stationed at. Um, was hit with a gas attack by the Zeons. And yes. just, it's like a quick like 30 second sequence, but it is very, especially if you've watched like Zeta Gundam and stuff and you've seen the gas attacks in other Gundam stuff, it is like very evocative to make you immediately be like, right, this is why someone would join the Earth Federation is because the Zeon military committed fucking atrocities in the war. And it's literally about the contrast between a faceless enemy, which is what he saw on that day, yeah. and an enemy with a face, which is what he sees in Aina, and and his only way to kind of reconcile that is to lean into the humanity of the person opposite him. Yeah, into he has this good moment where he's like standing up on the ridge or whatever, and he says like I hate Zeon. Um, like he uses the like Watashiwa Zeon gun to Nikui, so he uses like this really hard like Nikui is a pretty hard word to use to describe hate. That is like the way you hate some like a thing like the way i hate the american government i would use that word it's like in a like a profound like this thing is fundamentally wrong and i cannot like abide it basically um and that he uses that word and then he backs away from it um with like using the logic that you're saying this like but it's like but they're good people like you're a good person like it's not yeah. i hate this thing and i hate this war and i hate what's happening here um but that doesn't mean that individual people um are responsible for this right yeah um, and it's also our first uh, in-depth showcase of the Ina character since episode one. We didn't talk about her yet. Yeah. You want to quickly give us the deets on her voice act actress? Yeah, episode? so Ina's voiced by Kikiko Inoue, who if you've watched any modern anime, you will know as the mom in every modern anime. <laughs> like, it is, it really is, like, you have a main character in an anime that's been made in the past ten years. Yes. Does that main character have a mother that is alive in a presence in the show? Yes. Then she's voiced by Kikiko Inoue because uh, she's just like she's the mom in anime. Um, she's she's in like a shit ton of stuff. Like she's in everything. Um, she's very good. It is like fun to hear her like 
be able to voice a non-mom character because she is truly so heavily typecast in that kind of role. Um, and yeah, like I like Ina. I think Ina ends up being a little bit like a very standard kind of character. Like she's very sort of just like a character stereotype at some point to me that's like, there's not like, I don't think a huge amount to talk about, which is maybe why Reunion like doesn't land super hard for me is I think they have an opportunity to develop her more, but it just kind of feels like she exists in a very clear character archetype that she doesn't do much to kind of expand on or break out of in any big way. Yeah, I can see that. I do think... Uh, she has the best name on the show, Ina yeah. Sahalin. This yeah. is this is not a Gundam show with a bunch of super crazy names, but I do think the the just the the phonetics of Ina Sahalin is a fun name to say, yeah. as is Guineas Sahalin. Yes, I'm also scrolling through Kikiko Inoue's uh, uh, CV right now, or like her her uh, credits. And I'm realizing me talking about her being the anime mom is very funny, given what's going to happen in the next episode of Weekly Suit Gundam. Something okay. we'll talk about with her. Um, and maybe moms. Yeah. Who knows? Well, we'll get she's there. She's very much the anime mom. I was even more right about that than I realized. All righty. Um, okay. Episode eight, which is... Um, what's it called? Uh, I, I, I had it in front quick. of me. Uh, Duty and Ideals. Duty and Ideals. I think this is one of the best episodes in the series. Yes. Yeah, this is where, like... This is what I was saying with, like, Reunion, which I think is a good episode that is clumsy and, like, it's very functional and kind of getting a lot of its plot stuff to happen. Um, and I'm totally fine with it because then episode eight totally, like, makes good on all the clumsy stuff it does. Yeah. Because actually, the, briefly on episode seven, because the other moment to me that is, like, kind of hard to buy is the moment where the two ships are, like, fighting above and Shido runs out and it's like, why are you fighting? What are, what are we even fighting for? And he does that whole thing. Um, and it's just like, I can't quite buy Shido doing this. Like, I, I agree. It's much. The the episodes following it do it much more nuanced. Yes. Including episode eight. Um, but I agree. I think it's a little harsh in yeah. 7. So that's where, like, I feel like that's what I mean by clumsy. Is yes. It just, like, overcorrects for some things. Um, but then you get to episode eight where it just has to make good on that stuff. And you have, um, th this is where also like Miller's report adds a bunch of like scenes here that gives context to, if you want to watch the compilation movie, um, he gets court-martialed effectively for being suspected to be a spy because he and, and Ina were trapped up there and he didn't murder this Xeon woman and you're a Federation person. So you're supposed to murder people. It's your job. Um, and he didn't do his job. So they're going to. They, 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 you know, they're probably going to execute him if it had gone all the way to the inevitable conclusion. But Kiki's village is under attack, and so uh, the rest of the squad learns about that. They go and they tell Shido about it, and they're like, "Fuck it, let's go do some shit. Let's go save. Let's go do what we do, which is protect people and help people, which is like what they want to do as a team." And so then they go and they have like what is an incredible sequence of events with the Zeon pilots who is a group of, like, three Xeon pilots that are clearly, like, have been in a shit mission where everything got fucked up, and they're basically kind of lost in the jungle trying to make their way back. They don't have food. They go to Kiki's village, not knowing it's a guerrilla village, to try to get food, and there's one pilot there that is just a fucking asshole, because there's always a pilot there that's in, he's a military asshole. Um, that, like, the tensions are high. They make a couple of mistakes. He kind of fucks with Kiki a little bit. He kind of fucks with him back, and then everything spirals out of control, and the gorillas are blowing up the Zakus. The Zakus are blowing up the village. All Washido is trying to find a way to save everything, resolve the scenario without killing anybody, which is something that and this separates OHMS team from other Gundams 
then maybe try to play with this pacifism thing we've seen a little bit in Gundam Wing. We'll see in some future Gundam shows that I like that OHMS team. He Shiro has this ideal, but he's not good enough to actually execute on it. Like he's naive in this belief that's like I will be able to find a way to resolve this without killing the Zaku pilots. He says I still want to save the Zaku pilots with everything else that's going on, and he can't. No, he can't. And I love. I mean, the episode is called Duty and Ideals. Yeah, and it is a very fitting episode because that is exactly what it's about. At the beginning of the episode, while he's before like the military tribunal, they ask him, "Could you still fire on an enemy pilot?" And Shiro genuinely does not have an answer. And at the end of the episode, he fires on an enemy pilot. Yeah, because there just is no other option. And it is about that, like what one, what is your duty? And he has a slightly different sense of that than the military itself, and his team has a slightly different sense of that. And what are your ideals? And when they come into conflict, and that that second half of this episode is such a painful, lacerating example of... It's like the Kobayashi Maru situation from mm-hmm. Star Trek of, like, genuinely there is no way to reconcile those two things in this scenario because it involves human foibles and mistakes and misunderstandings that are beyond the control of any one person. And you don't have enough time right you've got minutes to make a decision on how you're going to resolve this and there's just no way to get everything to stop to try to figure out how are you going to get people to discuss this humanely or whatever you don't have that kind of time i love the other zeon the the zeon pilots in this you have the the woman who's sort of in charge of that little team and you really get the sense that but for a slight difference in circumstance that could be shiro and that could be him getting his team through the, the, the desert and getting to the jungle and they need food and Shiro would try to do it peacefully and maybe in this case it's Elidor's being a jackass or something and all would go to shit and then what do you do and like it's really good at presenting like these shades of grey where no one in that conflict is doing anything I think evil one person does something very fucking stupid yeah and then it is all a lot of very understandable human reactions to these things that Shiro is caught in the middle of it, it really is one of the best episodes of the series. Yeah, it's it's phenomenal. And there's, there's some of those, you know, like those little moments, which are things that define 08 the mess team, which is um, the way that our new Rumble Rowl dies, um, where the one the one pilot who's like, seems like he's like, he's like the dad. He has the picture of his kid up in his, yeah. his cockpit and all that kind of stuff. And he's about to use his boosters to jump. Right about as he's about to use the boosters to jump, one of the gorillas fires a RPG, hits the back of the Zaku, the Zaku angles slightly differently, and the exhaust just explodes the house that he and Rambaral dad are in and kills them. Um, Absolutely brutal moment. Definitely yeah. one I rewound several times. Yes, because the animation, again, of like the destruction is like, because it's, you know, it's this kind of wood structure with a straw roof and like all this kind of stuff. It just, as everything just it gets exploded and scattered with from the, just the heat and exhaust from the Zaku as it's trying to jump and then it balances off. So it sort of like flips and stumbles forward. It's just that like the mechanics of the physics of how all this is happening, where things are getting destroyed even without people intending to destroy them because of the power of these machines. And it definitely is one of those moments where you feel the danger that mobile suits represent where, I mean, the thing that the asshole pilot does initially where he just drops his like heat axe and it hits the ground and like tilts and it's the size of a fucking building. And so it's like, it almost falls on this little kid because it's so huge um, as he's just trying to like sort of like passively threaten them into giving them food. And it's like all he has to do is press a button to drop a thing and he can almost kill like three people. Yeah. Reminds me of like the uh, 
the shell casing hitting yeah. the mother in F91, uh, where you get the scale sense of things. Yeah. Let's also talk about Miller's report here. Okay, yeah. This is where it would have come out um, when it was released in theaters, and it also plays into this. Miller's report, I actually watched the whole thing this week. Have you? I, I watched it this morning. It's the first time I've actually watched it all the way through. I did yeah. kind of like, was looking at my phone when they were yes. just replaying clips of the yeah. whole show. But Me yeah. too. Because it's interesting. It is, it is not a recap of the whole thing. It is very specifically, it is framed as Shiro's court tribunal. There is this, this, this character, Miller, Alice Miller, who comes in and is like interviewing Shiro and trying to figure this out and make her report. And then it is essentially a slightly, but not that condensed version of episode seven and eight. Yeah. It does most of reunion and it does most of duty and ideals. Like you could, even if you wanted to, I would recommend just watching the normal episodes, but you could just go six, Miller's report nine. You would get most of it. Um, and it does a little bit of episode one where it shows Aina and, uh, and Shiro on the ship together. But other than that, like it doesn't go into the other episodes. It yeah. does open with a uh, with the end of episode six, um, but it's mostly just a way to show episodes seven and eight with that extra context. And there's about 15 minutes of new footage. Yeah. Um, and some of it's really good. I think the final sequence, which basically sets up episode nine, where Elidor comes back and Alice Miller kind of threatens Shiro and the team stands up for him and then they all go out on their mission together that they know is probably a suicide mission, is really good. And I would really heavily recommend people see it. Yeah, at least watch that one scene. I don't know if it like has like it does have little bits and pieces interspersed throughout, right? Um, that are like fine, but it, like some of it is just sort of characters. It's a classic compilation movie type thing where it's like it's okay, but it is mostly characters kind of explaining things that you've already figured out by yes. watching the episodes that they're sort of explaining. Um, but yes, that ending sequence. Um, that feels yeah, it feels like something that they maybe had planned to put in episode eight, but didn't have the time to. Um, and so they're like, well, we're doing this compilation thing because it's going to be like a year before we can get the rest of these episodes out. And, um, and in the initial Toonami broadcast yeah. of 8th MS Team, they edited all those scenes into episode 8. I don't think that cut has ever been officially released, like, because the DVDs in America all just have the normal episode 8. Uh, and there is no Japanese equivalent cut of that. Maybe a fan has done it somewhere. Um... But yeah, I think that was an interesting thing and probably the right call when you're airing it on Toonami to try to present that. It's certainly better than just airing, because you don't really need to see Miller's Report, the whole thing. Yeah. Um, but, you know, Miller's Report released in theaters alongside the Endless Waltz uh, movie version mm -hmm. of the OVA. And I have to say, that would be a very good night at the movies. Because yeah. I think we have to remember, I mean, for one, Endless Waltz, that is just like the new definitive special edition of Endless Waltz, and it would yeah. have looked killer on the big screen. But the appeal of compilation movies like this at the time in Japan was not that they would be like enduring cultural artifacts you would buy on DVD and watch again and again. It was, hey, you know this thing on your TV you really like? Go see it blown up on 35 millimeter on the big screen in, you know, with like good sound and stuff. Yeah. And that would have been the appeal, and it would be very cool. Yeah, and, you know, also the only other way you would have watched Await the Mess Team is by buying VHS or later right. discs of it. So it's like, and those were expensive. Yeah. So if you just wanted to get, like, a taste of it, you could go watch the compilation. I mean, that's probably a big reason why they have a lot of the stuff from Episode 1 in there is just like, right. hey, did you not watch any of this? This is, like, the bare minimum amount of context you need to understand anything that anything one's going to talk about. Yeah. Um, you need to see a little bit of Episode 1. The rest of it you can just kind of infer. But yeah, having uh, Miller's Report and the Endless Waltz Special Edition as a double feature in theaters would have been a night of very good OVA animation on the big screen. Yes, it would have been, you would have just like bathed in the production values. Like, oh my yes, gosh. Absolutely. Everything looks so good. Then you get episode nine, uh, Frontline, 
which I think is kind of a transitional episode. It's setting up a bunch of stuff, and I think it's yeah. not the best episode because it is sort of more set up than anything. But it does have some cool stuff, including Gundam's parachuting uh, down to the ground, which is just a phenomenal visual. Yeah, that's really good. I do like all this the stuff with the uh, tank team that uh, they're kind of like the main adversary for the episode. Yeah. Um, with the main guy there being voiced by Kinyu Horiuchi, who we know as Jamil Neat. Um, yep. from After Work at the Max, so you get like a little little bit of him there. Uh, and yeah, I do really like that moment where they have their final confrontation uh, and Shido has kind of like come to his conclusion of, you know, he's kind of got over his difficulties with fighting because he realizes like ultimately at the end of the day, I am like the captain of this team. Like Sanders is in danger back there. I have to fight for them. Like, and that's his conclusion. That's his answer at this point. Um, and him going, and he destroys the Magellan attack tank thing, um, and then he gets a like, little like camera feed that pops up that shows um, not Jamil neat dude like running away and smiling and waving. Uh, I really like that moment. That is another like feels like a very like callback in some ways to the tone of Time Be Still and like the way that like the Xeon pilots are just kind of fucking around in a way to just sort of save some time um, and like give people time to to evacuate. Yes, exactly. Also, this one ends with Guineas going full psychopath. Yes. Uh, where he is being ordered by the Xeon higher-ups to give up the Apsilis project and give his like base over for launching Xeon troops off-world. And instead, he gets them all in a tunnel and blows up the tunnel and just murders the Xeon hierarchy above him so he can do whatever he wants. Yeah, and, and he kills them and then he and also the pilot that to just escape from Shido, right. he also dies in that explosion, which is like a very sort of like dark turn at the end there where you like came to really like this guy and yeah. kind of respect him and then he just gets killed for Guineas's just petty fucking bullshit he can't let go of. He's a petty little bitch. Yep, yeah. he's a real motherfucker. Yep. Uh... But fuck all that. Because now we get to talk about episode 10. Yes. <laughs> episode 10 and 11. They're both great. The Shuddering Mountain parts 1 and 2. But also, episode... fantastic title. Oh, it's The Shuddering so Mountain. So good. Uh, it's good in Japanese, too. Yes. What's, what's the... Um, oh, it's... Um, I can't bring it up. I'll bring it up in a sec. Yeah, because okay. I, can, I can get it. No problem. Yes, but, but it is very good in Japanese. Yes. Um, but anyway, uh, oh, it's uh, Furueru Yama. Yes, Furueru is the yeah. one they use. Yeah, Furueru Yama, uh, which I really love hearing Shiro like, say at the end in like mm-hmm. the next episode preview. Um, episode 10 is the best episode of this series, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's one of the best episodes, like in single individual episodes so of Big Gundam. Gundam. Yeah. And it is, so in my list of like Hall of Fame things, this one has. It is just one of the best Gundam episodes because it is the best extended action sequence in the entire franchise. Yes. Which is the fight between Norris in the goof, in the custom goof, and the 8th MS team. And even before that, when he's fighting the other people, it has my favorite single mobile suit design in all of Gundam, which is this custom goof. It has, I think, a lot of the just best mobile suit animation. Every single shot the goof appears in in this episode is a killer, perfect, wallpaper-worthy Gundam shot. Every yeah. single one. Yeah, it is. They are all... It's that, you know, every frame is a picture thing. Yeah. It's like they are all the coolest picture you've ever seen in your life. Yep. It is so good. Uh, and it builds to an absolutely killer ending um, where basically this entire episode is watching the 8th MS team just completely lose. Yeah. And then Shiro making a decision and saying something weird out of the blue and then cut to black. And if you were in Japan, you have to wait 10 months. But if you are... Well, you cut to bat black and then get the words to be conducted on your screen yes. as opposed to to be concluded, which yes. I love. It's very good. Not since Gundam F91 have you had such good bad English. Yes. Um, God, this episode is good. 
Oh yeah, no, it's it's just incredible, and it's where it's part of like what you feel like in some ways the whole show has been building up to by it being the show where this is the show about normal pilots doing normal pilot stuff on the ground. It's like the most special that they are is that they're in the shitty Gundams, and like that's as special as they get. And the main dude seems pretty good as a pilot, but like he's not blowing up five Rick Doms in a single encounter, right? I'm not even sure Shiro is the best pilot on the team. I think Karen might be the most talented sure. pilot on the team. Yeah. She's like, like Shiro is the most talented pilot in the sense that he's going to do something stupid that like could potentially work out well. Whereas Karen is like, she's going to come back from every mission alive and she's going to like do respectably well, but she's not going to go out of her way to get herself fucking killed the yes. way that Shiro is. And yes. because he's the main character, he will survive somehow. Um, but yeah, but so you have these normal pilots doing normal pilot shit, and then you have Norris, who's like captain of like the guard or whatever for this like really prestigious family who that grew up on side three. Um, you have in one of these two episodes, you have that brief flashback to you have like Norris and Guineas and like little girl Ina, and it's like in their home in the colony, and you see like they live like a mile away from the fucking zombie palace that's in the background, right? So it's clear this family was just kind of fallen on somewhat hard times because Guineas is a petty bitch. Um, that generally speaking, they are effectively like Xeon royalty. Um, and so he is like the surrogate father who is like helped raise Ina and all this stuff. And he's like the elite motherfucking dude. And he has a, he has a goof custom. Like the goof is already a great mobile suit that is like more or less on par with the capabilities of the RX-78 2 Amuro's Gundam. Um, this is an even better one of those. And so it's a great pilot in a great fucking mobile suit. And as soon as the 8th MS team encountered them, the first thing they were like, oh, I think Sanders says it, this guy's an ace. Yes. Um, like this is, we have run into an actual ace pilot and it puts everything else you have seen in the show into such stark perspective on what you are normally seeing when you are watching Gundam. You're usually seeing things from Norris's perspective. Now you're looking you're, at it from the other side. You're usually seeing it from Shiro's perspective, you mean, right? Oh, no, no, Norris, no, no. yeah, you're, usually, yeah, okay. you are from the Ace, right? You right, are okay, Amuro, you, yeah. who is going, and you're fucking fighting the Black Tri-Stars yeah. and their three experimental Rick Doms, and you kill all three of them in one episode. Like, that's who you usually are with? I thought you meant for this specific no, show, for but this, I see, yeah. yeah, for this episode now, instead of being, you are you are the Ace Gundam boy, you are 23-year-old Amadashiro, who's pretty good. Yeah. But he's not this good. No. And... Yeah, and I love, like, so Norris has been a character through all these episodes in the background, but I also think one of the most impressive things this episode does on a narrative level is making him a great three-dimensional character for this 30 minutes where he will be our antagonist. Yeah. You know, and, like, this is his time to shine, and just putting that to, into focus where, like, he loves Ina as, like, a daughter, he is a... Like, he's a very, like, upstanding, noble person. I don't know if he has any, like, higher Xeon ideology other than he is, like, this person's bodyguard. But he fully believes in that. And yeah. if, if what Ina wants is to get this medical ship evacuated, which is a noble thing. Like, like Ina is kind of in Shiro's position where she is just trying to do the most good she can in the position she's in. And this is what she wants to do. And there are a bunch of anti-air tanks out there. And so Norris is like, all right, I will go get rid of those anti-air tanks. And he does it. He wins. Yeah. That's part of what makes this episode so good is that they he dies. But I love that the final moment is as Shiro is swinging the sword to cut him in half, he just smiles and goes, "I win." Yeah. And he does because he has gotten the line of sight on the final anti-air tank and he blows it the fuck up and they lose. Yeah. And, and it yeah, it's a just incredibly powerful 
conclusion to just like this incredible sequence of events where yeah you do have that great scene early on establishing like it establishes norris's motivation it sort of is one of my favorite moments with Ina, like her scene with norris there and then he leaves and she has this great line where she sort of just says to herself if he dies i'm the one who has killed him um because she's basically given him these orders uh, and then you just have, you know, what you need with any great action scene. Let's go back to our classic reference of the Seven Samurai with the fucking map. Yes. You have to set up the stakes. And so at the beginning of the episode, you set up the stakes of the OHMS team are here guarding these three gun tanks. Because they are the ones who are bombarding the base where the Absolus is. And it's like, the, and what Norris needs is to kill the gun tanks. And what the OHMS team needs to do is to protect these three gun tanks. It's like very specific. And they're in this little ruined city. And so you have this really great sense, even before Norris gets involved, you've already seen elements of the city and you have a sense of the space and like the destroyed highway that's kind of running around it um, and where the three gun tanks are. And then you have Norris come in, who also comes in in the coolest way of any fucking, it's like he's the fucking T-Rex in Jurassic Park where they, um, they basically, it's, it's the, and it's like the reason why I think they have Elidor, they had this idea. It's like, we want to do this kind of scene. And so it's like, we need to have the character who yeah. has the ear thing so they can hear and be like, something's coming. Something's big. And it's like, it's an elevator. It's coming up right from under us. And the goof just fucking shoots up out of the ground. It stands up on this fucking uh, building I, and looks down at them with its single fucking Cyclops eye. I have the, the shot, because I, I took all yeah. these screen caps of this episode, and the first shot when he's out in the town where he is standing on this ruined building with the sword out, he is framed by the sun, yeah. and then you go in close, and yes, you have the single eye searching, uh, and now they're going to have to fight this dude, you have him coming up in the elevator, is so good, just again, the coolest goddamn mobile suit animated so ludicrously well yes the spirit of ramba motherfucking Rao lives on with norris in the goof custom oh it's good and then basically the first part of the sequence is a slasher movie like yes. literally he is going around with he... a fucking gundam machete yes i mean literally like i have the clip because i cannot i could not help but film this clip uh, I don't know if it'll play well it's not going to play for you guys on the video but you can see it on my Twitter account where he just stabs into that gun tank yeah. and is like splattered in oil and blood on the goof's face like he's fucking you know Freddy yeah. or something this this is how Samurai Jack happened <laughs> Gabby yes. Tartakovsky I hope he watched this at some point he's like I have to make a TV show where this happens 50 times every single episode yeah. because this is the coolest thing I've ever seen I mean Sean here okay so here it is playing and I just love first the, the eye kind of looks over at Karen and yeah. then it goes down and just stabs and has the oil just splatter its face. Yeah, and it, it, this is where um, you get this payoff of what I was saying earlier where the way that the mobile suits are animated in the OMS team is very mechanical um, as opposed to by the time you get to stuff like Zeta Gundam it starts becoming a little bit more humanistic and then by the time you get to Gundam Wing and stuff like that it's very, they're just like big robot people basically is how they're animated most of the time. Um, OHMS team, you don't really have that feeling until the goof shows up. Because the way the goof is animated is so fluid. And especially when Norris is like running and he the goof jumps and it has the fucking grappling hook. Because the only way to make the Gundam or the goof cooler is to take the, the heat rod it used and then turn it into a fucking grappling hook also. Yes. So he's fucking swinging around on shit. Um, and, and so in the way it moves, it's just like a human body. Um, and this sense of Norris is such a skilled pilot that the goof is a natural extension of who he is rather than it being this like mechanical 
like machine. He's not piloting a car. He's like piloting an exosuit is basically the difference for him. Yes. And um, I and I think that's part of why this whole episode and sequence hits so hard is the nine episodes leading up to it of establishing a very different kind of piloting. Yes. As you said. And like the attention to detail is so good. I also love that he has three different major weapons he's using. Yes. He's got this big giant fucking Gatling gun, which Sean, you have your one one forty fourth model yes. uh, gun plot of the custom goof here, and you can just see in that because the 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 turret thing he has is attached to the shield. And if you line it up, like it's basically as tall as the entire mobile suit itself. Yes. Like, if I positioned the arm to be straight down, he would be, like, lifting off of the ground on top of it, like, as a fucking cane, basically, because it's so long. It's so long. He's got this amazing sword. I fucking love the sword he uses in this yeah, episode. Yeah, it's just a big fucking hunk of sharp metal. Yep. Like, I just love the idea of, like, the scale, how big his giant fucking machete sword is. is fucking ridiculous. Like, and it's not like a heat axe or anything. It's just a sword. Yeah, it's just a big piece of sharp metal he uses yeah. to cut fucking robots open with. Yep. And he has the, the grab hook that electrocutes yeah. things. And he's got a little hand cannon, which is underneath the yes. shield that he also uses, um, which is how he, he destroys the last gun tank right. as he uses that. Yeah, and the shield is effectively a weapon also because yeah. he uses it. So, like, in this in the span of this one episode, he's using all these different tools. It's, it's completely fluid. You have these amazings, like the scene where he's grappling, like, basically down the building to get that one yes. shot. and that's where you get the thing that I'm talking about with, like, the mechanics of it where... You know, he's falling down the building and Sanders is like, oh, I can shoot this guy because I can calculate, even if I can't see him, we can just calculate where he's going to be because he's falling and, and this is physics. And so he's like calculating, he's using the computer and the Gundam to calculate it and fires a shot and it misses because Norris is using the grappling hook to alter his rate of descent. And it's just like the way that the other pilots are relying so completely on like their instruments um, and it just feels like Norris doesn't need that. Um, he has this moment where he says, he shouts at Shido from his cockpit, basically. It's like, you know, die regretting that you're a pilot that wasn't able to make full use of your suit. Um, yes. And it's like, that's a fucking great line to shout as you're like murdering all these people in your giant fucking robot. The, okay, we're going to get very detail-oriented here. Yeah. But Sean, the specific shade of blue yes. they use in the animation of this episode and that gunplay actually really nails it. Yes. I'm, more than any other maybe gunplay I've seen in terms of capturing the hue from the episode. I mean, there's a reason the why this is the second gunplay I've ever built. I yes. had to make the, the Gundam first. And then I was yes. like, well, once I've made the first Gundam, which feels like you are like contractually obligated, or at least I felt that way, to do that first. And I was like, now nah, it's time to get down to some real business and build this fucking goof. It's so good. But the specific hue of blue they use, both the light blue and then the darker blue on the skirt, is so fucking good. And also, the red eye. Yes. I don't think the red eye on a Zaku or Zaku-esque machine has ever been used more effectively in Gundam than it is in this episode. Yeah, it's just, like, legitimately terrifying. Yes. Um, yeah, the way that it, like... Because it's also the, the way they frame it and the way that it looks, like, with the, the like, angle of the goose sort of, like, visor, is it always looks like it's just glaring menacingly. Yes. Rather than, like, the Zaku sometimes looks, like, slightly cute with the way the eye looks. Um, it's, like, very easy in, like, some framings that it looks kind of cute. Here, it's just, like, this is a fucking monster. Oh, it's so good. Um, all of its poses, all of its motion, all of the way they frame it in the episode. Like, I have a shot here where it's billowing smoke over it yep. with the red eye going through it. I mean, they knew what they were doing. Yeah. And they executed so perfectly. But it's not just the goof. It's also what the entire AMS yes. team is doing. Yeah, it's and it's the whole framing and pacing of this action scene as... 
Um, you know, they it opens with the Eighth MS team, like them being like, "Okay, we've got this," because we're a whole squad versus this one enemy goof. Um, and they very quickly start to be disabused of this notion that they are in any ways fine with this until eventually, like Shido just shout, shouts, "Like, guys, he is better than we are. Uh, yeah. Like, we have to be careful because he is better than us. Like, yep. definitively, we are going to lose this fight." <laughs> I mean, frankly, the only reason they don't all die is Norse doesn't take them that seriously. Yeah, and it's not his objective. Like, he's trying right. to get rid of the gun tanks as quickly as possible because so that the um, ship can, can leave. So he's not bothered with these Gundams. It's not his objective. And in addition to all of that, it just builds to such great character moments where Shiro, like, like the, the, he tries to go up against the goof. It easily takes him out and yeah. gets all of his, like, circuitry down. So Shiro is stuck in the dark. And is trying to put it all together, and that's the moment where he realizes he is like just fucking terrified of dying. And I don't, I don't, I can't think of another Gundam scene that nails that sense of like being about to be killed by a fucking rival ace pilot. And it's like you just get the sense of like he is seconds away from having his life snuffed out, and that feeling of fear and desperation is so well done. And then him screaming, I want to live, as he like shoves the giant floppy disk into yeah. the core and, and gets his Gundam back up and running. Oh, it's so good. Yeah, I mean, that scene is why you get Nobuyuki Hiyama to yep. voice that character, is for him to just scream, like, I want to live. Um, yeah, and like that sequence in particular, like directorially, is so well done. Um, and they kind of set up a similar thing in the previous episode with Karen... Um, where she can't see because the, her main camera has been destroyed. Because that's another thing to say is that her Gundam also has a GM head uh, on it for the whole episode, which is very good and very yes. OATMS team that's like, well, we don't have a spare Gundam head, but there was some destroyed GM at some point along the line, so they just fucking put the GM head on it so she could have her main camera. Yeah, Sanders is the last one standing with an actual, like, fully functioning Gundam. Yes. Um, and so you have a sequence when she loses her main camera in episode 9... Um, where Elidor is like shouting at her to aim it and you have a long sequence that is just from her perspective in the cockpit and you don't have any of the information of what's going on outside. Oh, it's so good. Yeah, and, so, and that's really good. And then they like one-up it here um, by having it happen to Shido and his whole power system just like basically short circuit and he's completely blind. And from that moment, you are stuck in that cockpit for like a minute of him just sitting there not knowing what's happening um, having no idea what's going on, like just shouting, basically, just kill me, just end it. Like, what are you even doing? Um, until eventually you, they finally will cut. And it's such a relief when it just gets you out of that cockpit because it's such a claustrophobic moment. And you see that fucking Norris is using him as a shield. Yes. Um, and so he's worth more to Norris alive in that moment so Norris can get one of the other gun tanks. Yep, and it is very good. And then when he gets it back online... Uh -huh. Shiro rips off one of the Gundam arms and starts beating the goof with it. What an idea! What an execution! Yeah. It is so good! Shiro Amada, a fucking legend. Like, this is the man who fucking took out Izaku with a ball in episode one. Yes. He's the fucking, I'm, you know, who gives a shit? I don't need both arms. He doesn't have the fucking rest of the weapons in his, his Easy 8 Gundam. So he just rips off the fucking forearm with the other arm and just starts wailing the goof with it. I mean, Shiro might not be the best pilot, he, but he might be the scrappiest. Yes. Yeah, he's definitely, like, he's, and you get the sense of, like, where Norris has this respect for Shiro in fighting and Gishido is also, he's the only one who can, like, manage, like, not hold his own, but, like, not just be immediately destroyed by Norris. Like, he's... Because this is also where you start to see with Shido 
that his Gundam is also animated a little bit more humanistically, like when he's fucking like falling against this water tank and using it to like fall, to slow his descent and all this stuff. Like Shido is clearly like learning and trying to adapt to this fighting scenario. Um, and then that culminating with him fucking ripping the arm off and being like, I want to live, motherfucker. I'm going to beat you this, like, you know, an animal that, like, bites off its foot to escape a trap. It's like, I'm just going to fucking get, I need to survive this. And the animation on him ripping the arm off and them showing, like, every fucking circuit and wire being yeah, torn in half. Yeah, ripping and electricity shooting all over the place. Oh, it's so good. It's I mean, amazing. it's like, I, and you could probably like recreate that with a gun plot because they're they're opposable and you can take uh-huh. the pieces off. And I love it. It does have that feeling of like pulling off one thing and put, it's just, oh, it's so good. It's fucking amazing. Yeah. And of course, leading then to the ending that we already talked about of Shiro kind of getting the advantage, but that's because Norris is perfectly prepared to die and he has strategically outmaneuvered and fuck it. He's going to die. He completed his mission. Yeah. He's, he, you know, Norris knows he was almost certainly going to die anyways because, yeah. I mean, there's no backup that's coming. You know, everybody's trying to get off of Earth. He's like the last dude yeah. there. So it's like, what does it matter to him? He's either going to die there's... in this fight now um, or in like accomplishing his objective or fail at the objective, survive for a little bit and then get killed by the giant Federation army that's like yeah. come right at his back. I mean, literally, at the, I think it's at the halfway point before the um, like the eye catch or something, but it's, it's near there where he smiles and says, this is a great place to die. Yes. Yeah. He just, he's in, he's in for a penny and for a pound and he just, he wins. Yeah. And that is part of what makes this such a great action sequence is, I mean, they live and that's nice. But he did, he won, he beat them. It's so yep. good. Yeah, and then you get um, that great kiss-off moment with Shido where he, like, steps out of his cockpit and just says, I'm leaving the service. Like, I'm done. Like, yeah. it's, it's just this feeling of, like, he realizes, what the fuck am I even doing here? Like, he realizes, like, he's not Norris. Like, he's not that fucking dude. <laughs> like, like, this is not his life. He's not a, like, professional soldier. What is he even doing here? Because we also get the, the after that happens, the Apsilis comes out yeah. and like does the big, um, what we find out in the next episode is a warning signal, but does this big shot and he looks up at the Apsilis, he knows that Ina is up there and that's when he stands up and says, all right, I'm out. Yeah, it's like, I'm good. Like, what, what, is, what are we even doing here? Like, I, I love that woman up there. I don't really like want to fight people. It's like clearly this experience he had with Norris was not fun. He did not enjoy this. Um, in the way that Norris was having a great fucking time. Oh he yeah, he loved the shit out of that fight. Um, <laughs> that's not the kind of guy that Shido is. It's like I, I'm good. I'm gonna leave. I'm gonna go try to save my girlfriend. Uh, if you guys want to go home, that's cool. Uh, I, anyways, I'm out. Yeah, yeah. Um, I will never forget seeing this episode for the first time and getting to the end of that and just feeling like. Like, I took a breath for the first time in uh-huh. half an hour, and like, oh my god, and then immediately hit play on the next episode, yeah. which people in Japan could not do at the <laughs> no. time, which sucks for them. Um, but man, I and honestly, Sean, it was kind of, I was half super excited to see this episode again, and half dreading it a little bit, because I had so built it up in my head. Uh-huh. From my I was first, in the same place. From my first viewing, I was like, is it as good as I remember? No, it's better. It's better. It's better. Yeah. yeah. It was like, it's been a couple of years since I watched it, and it's better. Yeah. Um, it's just like, it, it, it's, because especially because I think why I, I was like, uh-oh, is it maybe not as good as I thought? Because I watched like clips from it on YouTube, and it was like, it, it looked really good, but I'm like, it's, but it's not giving me the feeling of actually watching the fight. And then watching, and it's because it's a, a fight that you can't clip easily for a YouTube no. thing, the way that some Gundam fights you can. Because it's like, it's the whole episode is that fight. Um, even when they cut away, it is building up the tension 
of this confrontation. And it's like you need the full context of everything that's happening to really appreciate the tension that's occurring. In the I mean, fight. that episode has a singular focus. And yeah. Every every single shot, every cut, everything is building is is helping to contribute to this single combat. Yeah. Yeah. And episode eleven is not quite on that par, but it is still it's very good top tier. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it and it is one thing I love about episode eleven is it's, it feels like it manages to conclude the series while keeping it like very close to the heart of like what the OHMS team is about in the sense that like there's no huge like crazy climactic battle that Shido has with no. the Absolutes or whatever. Like yeah, like he goes up and punches it or whatever and kills um, Guineas. But it's not, you know, they, they had their huge action climax in episode 10. So that way, episode 11 is mostly just about, like, the character drama um, and the relationship between Shido and Aina. And I really like, because I couldn't remember exactly whether or not there was, like, a huge fight with the Absolus. Um, and watching it again, I'm like, it, there was a relief of, like, yes, they made the right choice in not having this be a big protracted fight with this giant mobile armor. Because that's not what the show is about at this point. Yeah, and also, like, they wouldn't really stand a chance if it was one-on-one combat with that thing. So it's much more about, like, the larger, also, like, military infrastructure going on there. And that that the the Federation probably would have taken it down one way or another. It's about the amount of loss. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's that thing where Guineas is utterly delusional. Like, like, Zeon has basically lost at this point anyways. They certainly lost any foothold they had on Earth because everyone's leaving to go fight at Solomon. And even if that thing got into space... Amuro would take it out pretty easily. Yes. Because we, no. we've seen him do it to other mobile armors. Yes. Like, the Absolus is cool. It's not Big Zam cool. No. That ain't no Big Zam. No. There ain't no Dozel Zabi fucking piling that thing. You've got this little shit motherfucker in there. Yeah. Like, he's not going to stand up on the top of the Absolus and fucking fire a rifle at a Gundam with a giant, like, phantasmical demon bursting out of his back. Right? Yeah, That's no. not who Gideon is. Gideon sucks. No, I think Amuro would take it out in, like, one shot. Yeah. He would, he would have his new type of sense of, like, I'm going to aim here, and it would be gone and he would never think twice about it yeah if um, Guineas and the Absolus were there like it would be less the big zam in the fucking giant snake thing that he blows up in the one or like the dumb like Zacrello or whatever it's called yes in that one episode that's like a throwaway mobile suit that Char's like it's fine that that thing died because I didn't even know we had it yeah uh, so I, I didn't really count it in like when I was taking <laughs> stock of our military resources it's it's cool if it blew up yeah exactly exactly um I do think episode 11 is incredible at imparting a sense of scale. Yeah. Because this is called the Shuddering Mountain for a reason. They are on this giant fucking mountain. I love all the shots of Aina standing out on the cockpit, mm-hmm. just seeing the whole horizon and the mountain range and all the destruction that it can do. Um, the sequence with the medivac ship trying to get out and then the Federation blowing it up. Um, all the stuff at the end with Shiro going up there and trying to save Aina. And it just, it, it in my mind, actually, it's even bigger than it actually is on screen because it does such a good job evoking, like, the size of the area they're they're inhabiting. Yeah, you have that incredible moment where um, Ina, after the medical ship gets exploded, Ina shoots the laser cannon um, and hits that mountain and, like, melts half the mountain. Right. Um, that definitely sells the scale of the kinds of, like, weaponry you're seeing here. Yes. Yeah. And, of course, basically an entire Federation fleet is coming up on Shiro's heels at this point. Yeah. Yeah. So, oh, it's so good. The the Medivac ship being blown up and and that's that's a pretty powerful. That's that's one of the darker things this show does. Yeah. Um in sort of painting, you know, it doesn't go into full both sides, everyone's equally bad, but it does like the Federation sucks and we know the Federation sucks and it it definitely um 
gives Shiro and Aina some fuel for their this entire thing is stupid uh, belief. <laughs> yeah, and just the sense of like, it, may, it puts you into perspective of like, at this point, a lot of these people in the Federation are fighting just to win the war. Like, right. they're not fighting for any like greater purpose or anything. And especially not like the, the fucking mustache motherfucker in this one who is a very good, evil, like military commander type character. I mean, it's like burning the fields down as you go through the campaign, right? Exactly, It's yeah. that kind of thing they're doing. Um, yeah, and I like the, the evil military commander contrasted with the guy that we've seen a couple times who's like the, the, the like, general for Yeah, Kojima. The, yeah, the, Kojima. The, yeah, the main, like, commander. I like he that, has that great kiss-off line um, where the general dude says, like, I hear those offices in Jaburo are, like, nice and comfy as a way to be like, hey, like, don't tell anyone about the war crimes I've committed as Kojima starts to leave. And Kojima's just, like, this great callback to episode two where he says, "You've always, I've always told you, I just can't stand air conditioning. And he leaves. It's like, yeah. fuck yeah, dude. That was great. <laughs> he leaves with the high ground intact. Yeah. Yes. Uh, I also love his just utter exasperation at this point with Shiro. Because uh-huh. he's a good dude. He doesn't want to, like, execute Shiro. He knows they might have to do a court-martial or something. But he's like, just go get this fucking idiot for us. Yeah. He's not going to do something crazy and, like, put a sniper in place to kill him like the other guy does. But he's like, I really have had it up to here with this dumb romantic kid. Because yeah. he's got a job to do. Come on. <laughs> yes. It's, it's where you have, um, where Karen, as... Shiro leaves at the beginning of the episode, Karen. You know, there's that whole, like, weird standoff where they were, like, told to kill Shiro if he leaves. And obviously they're not going to do that. Um, but Karen just says, you are the worst soldier I have ever met. Which, like, that line, I think, lands really hard. It's yeah. Like, it's very true. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you're trying to get the job done, he's, you know, sometimes he's helpful. Sometimes his ideals maybe, uh, maybe fuck yeah. you up a little bit. Yeah. I mean, he's just, like, you, you know, Shiro is a great guy. You don't want him in the military because no. it's like it's does it's not a good fit for him. It's too much of a free thinker. Exactly. He hasn't been like Arlie Ernied out of his uh, out of his uh, personality. Exactly. You know, and it's the thing that's great because it then means you know that Shiro never has to like live and grow up to be a fucking fascist. He gets to go yes. be his own man. Thank God. Yes, exactly. Get, get out, get out of that ship while it's sinking. Absolutely. Um, you know, I think the resolution of everything with I, I like that it comes back to the, the Shakespearean pitch. Of like Ina being shot in the chest yeah. and fought by her brother and falling off the ship and being caught by Shiro and then it turns out it's the watch that saved her and then they romantically go to kill Guineas together and it's ambiguous what happens to them. I mean, I I think it gets that. This is where the soap operatic tone I think pays off. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, and it's and it's like you know pushing the scale to this like great heights with the mobile yeah. armor and the love of destruction you're seeing. And having, you know, it all come back to the fucking watch from episode one that stops the bullet. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, it's very soapy. But like you said at the top of this podcast, like at least the 8MS team understands when it's operating that register, that it is operating in that register as opposed to Stardust Memory in its finale, which is even soapier than this bullshit. And it has no conception that that's what it's doing. No, and honestly, maybe soapy isn't even the right term. It's it, Maybe melodrama is better. But yeah. it, like it's got... Either way, like, it knows the virtues and values of the register it's working in, whereas Stardust Memory feels like it is trying to be, like, a big awards-winning movie, and instead it's, like, a daytime soap yeah. just that, that, like, ran out of ideas, mm-hmm. you know? Like, like the fucking soap parodies on Friends that, like, Joey is in. Yeah. That's what, that's what Stardust Memory's finale is. Yes. You know? It's, it's that. This is, like, this is the good shit. This is, like... It's a tearjerker in exactly the right way. I remember the first time I saw it, it had me on the edge of my seat where I was like, 
oh god is Ina like because if you're going Shakespearean that feels like the brother killing her that could have been the ending and yeah. then maybe Shiro kills himself trying to get him that would be very Romeo and Juliet I think the way they do it is even better but like it had me effectively on the edge of my seat and and yeah. the second time even knowing what was going to happen I was like god she really did take that bullet and I forgot that they were going to bring that back yeah like I legitimately was like because it's been long enough since I watched this like did she actually die? Because I, I remembered her living. I remember that she and Shiro get together at the end. But I was like, maybe I'm just forgetting something. Maybe she actually does just get fucking got in this episode. Yeah, it's effective. Yeah. It's just very effective. And the desperation of that final move where they like, they've like they got a Gundam that's missing a bottom half because it's yeah. been burned off. Like And also like its shoulder, like when the sniper... Like I said about all the shots where they remember that the lasers are very hot and burn things. Yeah. And, uh, and then it's just going into punch Guineas through the cockpit and gets burned out and you don't know what happens. And then I think ending it, the, the like final pre-credits scene being the entire 8th MS team running out, shouting Commander, trying yeah. to find him, is a really effective ending. Yeah, absolutely. It's just, it lands all the character dynamics you need. Um, it, it nails the Shido Aina stuff, even if that, like, sometimes the transition into this mode was a little bit clumsy. It's like, it, it doesn't matter if they land the ending, right? Right. If the transition was a little bit awkward. Yeah, it's perfect. It's, I really love the end credits doing the, the Elidor song yeah. over these kind of romantic images and then ending with something that I think you can read in a couple different ways. It's ambiguous. Like, is this a vision? Is this the reality of them walking out together? But it feels like just right to yes. me. Uh, and it has some really great shots in there as well. Like I love the one of like the lone cross mm -hmm. on the like bed of dirt and rubble. Um, oh, it's good. And I think it nails something. I think Shuddering Mountain Part 2 nails something that is really a tradition for Gundam, particularly the Tomino Gundam, where Tomino likes to do the denouement tied into the climax. Yeah. Where we end in the action and it's and it's not that it doesn't resolve its themes it's just it's so good at doing it all through one big piece of action OG Gundam does it Zeta Gundam, Gundam is really yeah. good at it Zeta Gundam is definitely like the epitome of that where it yeah. is like truly in the midst of the climax the, yeah. the ending occurs and Char's counterattack too I mean yes. Char's counterattack just ends on the flash of light. Yeah, I mean, it ends on, she was like a mother to me. What the fuck did you just say? And then everyone explodes. Yes, exactly. And it's perfect. And this is basically that kind of thing. And it's why it feels like such a perfect ending. And I wrote this, like, if Eleven is considered the actual end. Which it is. It, which it is. It's just one of the great mic drops. Yeah. It is a perfect, like, we did it. We impressed you. We blew your mind. Done. Yes. I mean, it fades to black and the words, the end, come up on yep. the screen. It is the ending. And it is that thing of where... Um, because now we have to talk about episode 12. I was so confused the first time I watched this, Sean. Yeah. Because I wasn't reading the Japanese wiki. All I knew is that there were 12 episodes in my queue. And there was another one. And I get to the end of Shuddering Mountain 2. And I'm like, what? How? What? And it, it said... It, it's like... it's It didn't put the normal ending theme in there. It did its like and a new theme over the credits as yes. to showing you story and then it faced the black and says the end. That is the ending of an anime series. I know, and but then, I was so No, confused. yes. Yeah. And then if you're watching it in a the Western context, you're just given another episode. Um which I don't remember what my reaction was originally because I have like have like I I've only ever seen I guess this is now the second time I've seen um, Last Resort, which is the 12th episode or the special episode, whatever you want to call it. Um, this is the second time I've watched it. 
I have very little recollection of it whatsoever. Like, I had a vague sense of, like, right, there was this weird epilogue thing. I didn't remember anything about it at all. Um, and I, because I, I think I have a vague sense of that. I, afterwards, I looked up and, like, got that sense of, okay, maybe it was, like, a weird thing, but I'm not sure. Um, but I do think it's, it's frustrating to me that the Western, like, whatever it is, whether the distributors, whoever is, like, responsible for, like, packaging and, like, advertising it this way, don't, but, like, it should say in the Blu-ray menu or whatever, it should say, like, special episode. Put it under bonus features. features. I mean, yeah, something like that. Because that, that is what it is. Like, it very much... Um, but in the English Wikipedia, it doesn't separate it out in any way. It just says, says um, episode count, 12 episodes. And you click on the list of episodes, and it gives you those 12 episodes. And then the Japanese Wikipedia says, nope, this is 11 episodes with some weird thing that came out later. Uh, that's one episode. And then, and then they also made that movie. Yeah. And... The thing is, even if it was a really good episode of Gundam, it would be weird coming off of episode 11. Yeah, there's no place for a big epilogue story, really. And I don't think it's good. I think this is a terrible episode. I think it's like, it would be fine as like a weird little Gundam side thing removed of the rest of OA the Mess team. as like, here's just a little story about like some new type kids in the fallout of the One Year War. It's not great i would be like okay it'd be it'd be like the ms igloo or like there's a bunch of these little like things like scattered across the legacy of gundam some of which we've like i mean we haven't hit most of them yet because most of them are like in the early 2000s where they've done a bunch of like weird little ones um like the one that they did with the ohms team this like the battle in the third dimension or whatever like here's just like a weird thing that they made for like a anime festival or something at some point on like an anniversary and it's just out there if it was something like that it would be like i would have checked it out once when i was watching every single thing i could absolutely see that had gundam in it <laughs> yes. um and then have completely forgotten about it it is extremely weird and in the juxtaposition with it being attached to one of the best gundam series in that light it is really bad like if you watch it thinking it's episode 12 it's like inexcusably awful like oh, it's yeah. just terrible in that which context. is how i saw it the first time yeah and, and I, you'll even if you go back to our first uh to our episode where we did the original gundam movie trilogy and like the one year war wrap-up you'll hear me be very confused yeah. um and say that like because I, I it's it's honestly kind of a downer if you because i just binged it i think i did the last six eight ms team episodes in one sitting the first time i watched it and so it was super weird. Knowing that, I mean, I can separate it. Honestly, this time, Sean, this episode bores me to such tears that I just skipped through most of it. Like, I once I would get to a scene, I would just go, uh, 30 seconds ahead, 30 seconds ahead. 30. Okay, now something new is happening. No, this isn't good either. 30 seconds ahead, 30 seconds ahead. And I was trying to get, and I was like, I remembered, well, there is a scene with Shiro and Aina. Uh, kind of there isn't, though, because you just see them, and their voice actors aren't even credited because they no, don't have yeah, lines. Yeah, I mean, they only got two of the characters back yeah. um, to do it. I like it is a thing where again there's no like official documentation because I don't think anyone would have said this but it very much I'm pretty sure is just we had a contractual obligation to yeah. make a 12th thing um because also it is utterly bizarre to take the 08th MS team a thing that is the furthest from new types like any fucking one year war thing is and then do your epilogue story vaguely it's not really an epilogue story but what is vaguely positioned as an epilogue story and have it be about a bunch of kids who have escaped the Flanagan Institute. It's so weird. Yeah, it's like, it's just, it has this sense of someone had, like, a short story from an anthology collection that never got picked up or something, just lying around and like, let's turn this into an episode. It is also 
so clearly struggling to hit 30 minutes because <laughs> this entire episode is just a series of red herrings on because really what it is is it's trying to give you more closure on Shiro and Aina. I would argue you don't need that after episode 11, no. but I can see maybe having the desire for that. So if you want that, that's what this episode is offering to give you. And instead it just keeps kicking you in the nuts with like these different like red herrings where it's like, I am Shiro Amada. And it's like, he's our commander. And then you meet him and he's a kid. And then it's like, this was Aina, she's dead. And it's like this body wrapped in bandages. And I remember being so frustrated by how much this episode is like kicking you in the wind. Like, yeah. just you feel like you're fluttering out there through all of it because it's like, because at first you're like, is Ina dead? That's fucking dark. And then you're like, no, this is someone else. And we actually took our names and they gave up their names. And they and it just is like, this basically, it is an episode. It is a filler episode at the end to get yeah. to a final scene that gives you truly nothing new beyond what episode 11 already gave you. Other than that, Ina is pregnant. And yeah. and that apparently in his retirement, Shiro has taken up turtlenecks. That is like, that is like yeah. the two pieces of information <laughs> you've learned. Yeah. Turtlenecks and babies. That's it. And I would argue nothing substantive is there. (laughs) Um, So it is basically like, yeah, it is is very weird for the finale of an anime to be filler. But that is what this feels like. Yeah. Which again, it's not actually the finale. It is the... I know, but... Yeah, it's like the weird context, like the the messed up context we get it in over here. Um, Yeah, and it's like, it, it just feels cheap in a lot of ways as well. Like just this sense of... They only had Mikel and Kiki probably just, like, to keep the cast down, the cast number down, and, like, maybe other people had other commitments that they, other projects had moved on to or something like that at that point. Um, Because it's also, like, those are two characters that are, like, I have no interest in seeing those two characters together. Like, there's no, like, interesting dynamic with the two of them. Like, I like Kiki. I like Mikel. They're fine characters on their own. But, like, as a pair, there's not a lot of, like, spark there. I mean, if this had been a Karen Sanders story yeah. and nothing else different, it would automatically be, like, three times yes. as good. Or Mikel and Elador. Or Elador and Karen. Or Karen and Kiki would yeah. be a way better pairing than Mikel and Kiki. Um, and it's probably because those are the two, like, like lowest-key voice actors in the cast. Like, I mean, generally through, speaking, yes. Yeah, like, I mean, yeah, all the other ones are huge yeah, stars. They've been, they've been in, uh, they have like a fine record, but they are not like huge. They're not actors. Tesh Ogenda. I yeah, mean, exactly, yeah. Yeah, not to be rude or anything, but just, you know, some people are famous, more famous. And like, it's, uh, it's a weird choice. It's, yeah, I mean, I, I said this on Twitter last night. If you are watching 8th MS Team for the first time, watch the 11. And if you are really curious, like wait a week and then do 12. Just like wait long enough that like yeah. you, it's not going to like, just know that it's not the finale. Yeah, watch Last Resort only as a... Last Resort is my pun there. That's, like, not really what I mean, because that's way too mean. Like, it's a curiosity, um, yes. is what it is. And in that context, it is totally fine as a weird Gundam curiosity if you want to watch all Gundam stuff. Um, it, it is a thing where, if you know, if you bought the full season of OHMS Team on Japanese Amazon, you would only get episodes 1 through 11, and you would not get Last Resort, because that's, it's not in that pack. That's pretty much how it should be. Yeah. Um, it is on the Japanese Blu-rays and all that stuff, but yeah, I, I was trying to see if I could find like a high-resolution image of like the back of one of the Blu-ray boxes to see if they like labeled it differently, but I couldn't find anything. Yeah, because I I suspect also those menus label it Probably as Tokubetsu yeah. Hin, which is the phrase they use for like special part, basically. Yes. Um, so it's weird. It does not like, especially on a second viewing, I it does not factor into my analysis of the series because you really. Do understand, and especially with the context you've given yeah. us of like how the Japanese side views it, 
I, I just wouldn't even factor it into like my analysis of the series. Um, if you do, if you're like me the first time and you just have no idea, it will drag it down for you. But, you know, I think if you go in with the right mindset, this is a pretty sterling 11 episode run. Yeah. And then there's this weird other thing. Yeah, there's this weird other thing. It's just whatever. You know, we also, we never talked about the fucking like Chibi Gundam, SD Gundam stuff. Yeah. I've watched some of that. Some of it is okay. Most of it is like, here's this weird other thing. That you don't really have to worry about because it's not that good. Exactly. It's fine. It's fine. But OHM S team as a whole, fucking rules. Fucking rules. It's oh my great. god. Yeah. Like I said, it's it's the dessert for Gundam fans. It really is one of the things I would like, even if you just have a passing enjoyment, you should watch this one. It's anyone yeah. would enjoy mm-hmm. it. Yeah, like it it is uh it's maybe like the best concentrated mecha action of anything I've seen. I think I'd probably put it in that. Like there is, you know, there's other Gundam stuff that's very good. There are other mech shows I've seen that are very good. But if you want just that sense of like the military tactics, the action, the animation, um, and all that, and then have like the narrative and all that is good and supports it. Um, if you want that full package there and like a concentrated 11 episode thing, this is like as good as that will get. It's like the popcorn action movie of Gundam. Yeah. And it, it is the kind of thing that, and honestly, I would pay good money for them to just put all 11 on a, in a theater together and I would sit there for four hours oh watching it. Yeah. Um, but like, that's what it feels like. It's like, it's like the John Wick of, of, of yes. Gundam or something. Like, like just top-notch popcorn entertainment that does not really have any aspersions about what it is beyond that, you know? Which is fine. Which is fine. Yeah, which is totally fine. To. Yeah. This is not like Stardust Memory thinks it is smarter than 08MS Team and it is much dumber. Yeah. 08MS Team is not trying to tell you it is smarter or dumber than anything else. It just gets its boots on the ground and yeah. goes to work. It's just like, yo, check out this fucking goof with the fucking grappling hook and a giant Gatling gun on its shield. That's really cool, huh? Yeah. And, I, and, you know, I think if you look around the fandom, this is probably one of the most, like, least disagreed upon series. Oh, yeah. It is it is this in like, War in the Pocket um, are probably the most two universally beloved. Um, like, Zeta is really high up there. But, yeah. Like, it's yeah. Hard, you'd be very hard-pressed to find someone who likes Gundam but does not like the MS team. I've never seen it. It would be fucking weird. Yeah. It would be... be- Pretty hard to do. Like, I would be like, what are you watching Gundam for? Yeah. <laughs> if not if not that goof, what are you watching Gundam for? Yes. <laughs> I mean, I know it has a lot of other interesting There's, things. It has stuff, a lot but... of other things, but also, like, you're, you're, there are other stuff that do those other things, too. But yes. Gundam is the only thing that has all that shit together in one package with a goof. Yep. Let's talk about uh, music for a second. Yes, because there's, there's, you've got both um, a great opening and ending themes, and then you also have a phenomenal, stellar soundtrack by Kohei Tanaka. Yes. Uh, Kohei Tanaka, who I think his work on G Gundam is even better, but this is obviously no slouch. Yeah. Um, it's it's very good. It's Kohei Tanaka should just score more things. He's awesome. Um, and I think, honestly, one of the reasons to watch Miller's Report, if you haven't, is that the score is different than in yeah. those episodes, and it's really good music. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's great. There's, a, there's an, a concert album out there that was live in Prague with like the Prague Philharmonic that's very good to yeah. go listen to if you want the symphonic version. Um, it's a killer score. Yeah, it's absolutely killer. It's also funny for me uh, because I played a lot of that Gundam versus game on the PlayStation 4, and that game has a huge selection of music from different Gundam shows that you can then select and like say, this is music plays over the victory screen and all this kind of stuff. You can customize it, which is awesome. And the song I made is like the main menu song, which I've heard now like dozens of times. Like every time I boot up that game, when I get like a hankering to be played as the goof, which I did yesterday, um, it's like, I just want to play like 10 minutes of this game and jump around in this mobile suit. Um, 
it, I, the song I have is the song that plays over the uh, like next on previews, the ba ba da ba ba da ba 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 ba, and so because it's such a great song and it also is a very good menu song because it is designed to be this like next on thing. So it's designed to kind of play in the background to get you excited. And so every time I'd have a next on preview, like my hands tw- twist a little bit and that like, <laughs> I'm like, this my video game just booted up? What's happening? Because it's like, it's just that exact track. Yep. Um, the theme songs. I mean, Shine in the Storm and 10 Years After are one of the best pairs in the whole yeah. series. I love that they just stick with them and they didn't change halfway through because they... It was four years. They really could have. Yes, yeah. At some point, they could have been like, we need to make a little bit extra money on from some CD sales or something, yeah. guys. But no, it's great. I mean, Shine in the Storm is one of those I would put up there with, like, Dreams from After War Gundam X or the um, yeah. the the Gundam Wing song where the first, like, ten seconds is this hook that, like, means you will always watch the full opening. Uh-huh. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, it's a phenomenal opening. I also adore Ten Years After. Yes. Um, especially combined with the animation it's one of my favorite, like, not since the Relina ending in uh, Gundam Wing has there been an ending animation that I enjoy just watching the animation yeah. of Shido just sitting back reading a thing while, like, dumb stuff is happening around him as people are, like, putting their, like, fucking Playboy in the camera and people, like, carrying boxes around and someone, like, is doing shit in the background. It's a very great, uh, it captures so much of the tone of those moments in 08 The Mess Team while where people are just like fucking around on the base before the mission happens. Yeah. I also love the animation for the opening. It's got yes. some sexy ass shots. Uh, I also love the, the one I always remember the opening is after there's the shot where you have the Gundam walking through the water, which is great. And then mm-hmm. it goes to Mikel on this like giant fucking like turret. It's <laughs> just firing like cases and going everywhere, which Mikel never does. Yeah. But yeah, I love I that he, it's in the He theme. fires that gun like once and it's when he like fucks up and fires it. And then the absolute knows where they are in yeah. episode three or four of it's like, why did you shoot you fucking idiot? It's the only time he shoots that gun. But I love this. He's like, I don't like going full Rambo in the yeah. opening. Um, God, they're good. Uh, I think the the song, the Elador song, the play several times is great, and Miller's report also has a unique ending theme. These yes. are all by the same artist, I think. Yeah, Chihiro um, Yonekuda. Yeah, and those are all good. The, the Miller's report one is also, if you've never heard it, it's it's not as good as the other ones, but it's worth listening. Yeah, to. It's, yeah, Gateway to Eternity. Is yes, that one's a good called. one. Very good. Um, anything else to say about the eighth motherfucking MS team? The eighth MS team. It's just. I had such a great time watching this. Yeah. It's, it's been a couple of years, and yeah, and I got the Blu-rays, and the Blu-rays are very crisp, and they look very good. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it's just, it's such a treat. It's just such a pleasant show to watch. I could go do it again right now. Yeah, absolutely. It is It is one of those Desert Island Gundams that's like, yes. that I would take that Blu-ray with me on my Desert Island that has a TV and electricity and watch it. I would at least, forever. I would at least need episode 10. Yes, yeah. Th- if you had to pick one... I mean, yeah. Episode 10, that might be the most we've talked about any individual episode on this podcast outside of the original Gundams where we only did like yes. four episodes. I, it's that good. <laughs> it's very good. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Should we give a preview of what we're doing next time? Yes, because there is a little bit to discuss with next yes. time. Because we are moving into uh, the new century, the 21st century, the first proper 21st century Gundam show, which is Mobile Suit Gundam Seed. Um, which I'm really excited to watch that, really excited to get to do that podcast and move into like this transitionary period into what feels like modern anime now that we're yeah. going into the 2000s. Also by far one of our most requested episodes. Uh, I get comments on it all the time, which I do want to say we're going to do all of them. 
Yeah. It's okay. You we're gonna get them. Yeah, if there's we, one we, you want to we'll, like, I know Iron Blooded Orphans is out there. We're, it's gonna be a while, but we will get there. That's gonna be a good one. Yes, but, uh, but Kiko Inoue, the, the anime mom, she also is in Iron Blooded Orphans, <laughs> but she does not play a mom in that one. Um, but she's very good in that one. Groundbreaking. Yes. Um. So yeah. So we are gonna get to all of them. We're going into Gundam Seed. If you know a little bit about Gundam Seed, you might know that there are two different versions of Gundam Seed that are out there. Um, and so there is the original TV version, and then they made a HD remaster version of it several years later. We are going to specifically watch the original TV version of it as it aired way back when. Yeah. Yeah. And and I will say, like, they're, they're, the special edition is the one that's on, like, Crunchyroll and stuff. Yes, yeah. If you watch it on Crunchyroll, it will be the HD remaster. Yeah. Why do you want us to do the original version? Um, well, this was a choice that you made. Was you, it? You told me this like six months ago. Oh. I, as is always in keeping with this podcast, Jonathan, I try not to make the decisions of where we go. Um, okay. I just I just let you do it, and I make small suggestions. Because I'd be fine with either one. Because I I don't yeah. have I haven't seen it, and I have no preference. So but. the last time we talked about it, which was when we thought that we would have probably been through Seed Destiny at this point, yeah. <laughs> instead of having like this huge hiatus we had um, between Stardust Memory. Um, you, you said you expressed more interest in the theatrical version. I think that's what we're going to watch specifically because a lot of the direction that this project has gone in is chronological Gundam. And I do think there's something I want to kind of preserve for um, Double O Gundam when we get to that as being the first widescreen HD, yeah. full digital animation, all that stuff. And the HD remaster of Gundam Seed is a little bit redone in kind of that style. Um, and there are some minor alterations that are made to in a very star wars special edition kind of way like a han shoots first kind of thing where there are like some moments where like the context is slightly changed because they slightly altered it nothing huge so we are going to watch that version um because i think that's i'm not i don't know what's the best version to watch that's the one that i think is most in keeping with the spirit of what we're doing with the podcast which is a little bit history as yes. well um all that being said, if you want to watch the HD remaster version, because it is a lot easier to access, you, you can just watch it on Crunchyroll. It is if you own the previous DVD release, that's a fairly old release at this point. That's the only version that was on there. There is now, I don't know if it's out yet or not, but there's Right Stuff has is either has or is in the process of releasing a big box set that is very expensive that has both of them on there, which will be the first time the, the original TV versions have been aired or like available in the West uh, officially. But so if you want to watch the HD remaster version, you can watch that version because they're like 99% basically the same. All the characters, the narrative content, all that is going to be the same. You'll be able to follow all of our conversations. Um, outside of we'll like obviously be talking a little bit about specifics of animation. And when there are moments where they made changes, um, Jonathan, if you want to like look up a list and watch them after you've watched Gundam Seed, you can do that. I will also shout them out and like kind of indicate here's like where they did this one thing in the HD remaster that's slightly different and we can talk about those um generally speaking the HD remaster is a very good version um it is not like Dragon Ball Kai or something where they just like sort of cropped it to make it widescreen and stuff they did a lot of work reanimating sequences um so it is a totally fine version of that show there are some advantages to it some disadvantages depending on how you feel about some of the changes so I just want to make that so when people are looking if you want to watch along with us um, that's what we're going to do. And it is a similar situation with Seed Destiny, where they did an HD remaster. The HD remaster for Seed Destiny is also not that good compared to Seed, because the Seed HD remaster 
was a pretty lavish production that did not make that much money because I don't know what context. I don't know how it would have made the money back because they basically re, half remade that TV show and that's a lot that's expensive and people are not going to make that money back that way. Um, so they didn't spend as much money on it on Sea Destiny. We are going to do the TV version of Sea Destiny also and that would be one where I'd maybe nudge people a little bit more to like seek out that version because I think it's um, there are several things that are notably better in that version of it. Yeah. But that'll be next. It might be a little while before we can get to it, because this is a 50-episode series. Yes, this is a full... We're, we're out of OVA land, and we're back into full, proper, big, crazy Gundam shows that you know aired over the course of an entire year. Yeah, so we're both going to watch it. Me, for the first time, I know nothing about Seed. I don't know the yeah. first thing. I haven't looked up a goddamn thing about it, other than I know it's really popular. Yes, it is profoundly popular. Um, I'm very excited to watch it again, because I remember liking Seed quite a bit. Um, and I think it's going to spark interesting conversations. And I'm just excited to like move into this like era. Like we're in this like fun transitionary period in the early 2000s that then starts to move to modern anime. So it's a big shift we're going to be jumping into now with Gundam Seed uh, that I think is very exciting for the podcast. Absolutely. So I think we've got done a lot of great stuff already for this show. And I'm excited to get into kind of the second half of Gundam's lifespan. Yes, yeah, it's 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 very exciting. I'm I'm so happy we're doing the podcast again. Uh, hopefully, it's not going to be a year before we get to see. We'll try to not make it a huge uh, long wait, but we will be joining you again soon with jumping into some motherfucking mobile suit Gundam seed. She could